you, kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And this is episode 449, and we have a guest. It's almost like a crime against humanity has taken us so long to get him on the podcast because we have so many mutual friends and contacts and interests. But John Lobinger from Film Baby Film, who's a close friend of Aaron West and Becca Deanna and basically all of our inner circle we're going to be tackling the great, actually, I want to make sure I get this name completely correct because it's quite a mouthful, Count Don Lucino Visconti di Madrone, who yes. otherwise is known as Lucino Visconti. And John, welcome to Wrong Real. This is long overdue, but I'm thrilled to have you here. No, thank you for having me on. It's uh, so intimidating. So first of all, it's just so exciting to be on your show and to get to talk to you. Uh, you came on my show recently to discuss the big picture, and that was wonderful. Um now coming on, and we did not choose an easy topic to just to just launch with. Especially coming two episodes after Tony Stella's epic Federico Fellini episode. It's like, you know what? All the pressure's on you because this is your topic. <laughs> I, I'm new to Visconti's work. I'd seen The Leopard at the Film Forum years ago, and I was blown away. But it just, for whatever reason, I left his career alone. But in right. cramming for this episode, I bought a bunch of Blu-rays and DVDs and went online. And I, I've seen nine of his films total. And I've seen some documentaries. But I am a total neophyte newcomer to his career. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what your thoughts are on him and why he's so important to you. And also, I just I always love topics that force me to up my game in areas where I'm very weak and very shallow in my knowledge. So Visconti was definitely one of those kind of closet embarrassments of mine. So I was long overdue on that front as well in getting up to speed. Well, and so anybody that hasn't listened to the Tony Stella episode yet, actually don't rush and go listen to it right away because his episode is so good and his pronunciation of Italian names is so amazing. I'm a little bit nervous that people will be comparing, but absolutely listening to that episode, that made me want to up my game in terms of, I already knew a lot about Lucchino Visconti. I'd already seen uh, 12 out of his 14 feature length films. I added a 13th one. I still have one that I'm missing. Um, but you know, I'd already read several books about, uh, about him, about his life, about his films and listening to Tony and just the passion that he brought and the knowledge that he brought. I, I still went back and was like, I need to do one more of my favorite comments was my listener is like, I think, I feel like Tony's about to jump out of my earbuds and like attack me. Like he was, that was, so me. Inter- that was you. Yeah, he's that so was energetic me. <laughs> and so intense. He's like, gah, gah, gah. like yeah, Tony, uh, when he, uh, it's always like, I feel like it's one of those great like Royal Rumble episodes. It's like Hulk Hogan versus like Andre the Giant. But yeah, when you bring on Tony, you better just uh, you better ring your A game, or he'll just like wash over you like a tidal wave. But it's always a huge privilege to unleash Tony on the listeners of the world. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I was eating, 
I was eating pho. I was eating some noodles down the street and I'm listening to, and I was getting ready for Visconti and getting ready for Visconti is it's training for a prize fight. You really need to get, you need, really need to focus because there's just so much going on. They're big movies on big topics. Yeah, the the movies are huge. Everything's huge, and so. But I wanted to. I I love Tony. Uh, his episode about Kobayashi was one of my favorite episodes of Wrong Real. So I immediately started listening to it. Plus, considering we're talking about an Italian filmmaker, another one of the greats, I wanted to certainly know what some of his thoughts were on Fellini. And I was so fired up listening to him that I immediately went and watched Amacord. I stopped Very all nice. the preparation I was doing. And yeah, it felt like he was ju- like going to jump through my uh, my iPhone earbuds and just like shake me by the lapel and say, stop what you're doing and watch some Fellini. A lot of people have passion that is off-putting. Some people have passion that's inviting and uh, very uh, persuasive. And Tony's got the best kind of enthusiasm where he invites you into the obsession, the passion that makes you want to learn more. Some people, sometimes when they start kind of ranting or raving on their favorite topic, you're like, please go away and let's have a hundred foot rule (laughs) in effect, etc. But Tony's got the kind of rabid, maniacal enthusiasm that I absolutely love. But before we get into Lucina Visconti, let's talk a little bit about Film Baby Film, what who you are, what you do, because some people listening might not have heard your show before. Absolutely. So I have a I have a podcast, Film Baby Film. It's uh, we have I think we're releasing episode thirty fairly soon. It's actually with friend of you, you know a member of the Wrong Real family. It's with Dave Eves, and nice. we're talking about we're talking about what else? We're talking about Ingmar Bergman. He wanted to do Cries and Whispers, but I watched it and it gave me such a it was such a buzzkill for me. I decided we needed to do. He's already tackled Cries and Whispers on wrong. I think his second wrong reel maybe ever once he came on to tackle all of his favorite criterions, and that was one of them. So he's uh, clearly returning to the well for the topic. Maybe he feels like we uh, had a shallow interpretation of it our, our, our time at bet. No, he just wants to re. It's it's what every writer or content creator. I don't I don't like that phrase, but it's anybody that does that sort of thing does this sort of thing wants to just reuse it as much as possible. Uh, but it, so I decided at the last minute we changed it to Hour of the Wolf. Oh, that's a good you know, one. I a fucking much, love that. A, a pick me up movie in comparison, but no. So, um, so we have about thirty episodes, and yeah, it's. You know, it's I'm just a really passionate amateur. I didn't go to film school. I didn't study film. I studied philosophy and English and all this other stuff. So this is certainly in my wheelhouse, but I got really deeply passionate about film. A couple of years ago, I went to Sundance Film Festival. I got really turned on to the Criterion Collection and the Criterion Collection communities because of of all things. I picked up Notorious by Hitchcock at a... I just love the cover so much, that old cover uh, with Ingrid Bergman on it that I picked up sight unseen that film. That's one of the good ones. I love it. Got totally addicted, started watching all the sight and sound movies, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, so, and around the time I started getting really into movies, I quit drinking. I quit partying. Interesting. And yeah. And Dave Eves would be sorely disappointed because he definitely combines (laughs) the two with total abandon and relish. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. I think I go to a lot of midnight movies, and believe me, I am the only person there <laughs> who, is, who is completely sober for those things. No. And it, but it was just one of those things where, you know, I, I, left, I left an old passion of mine and then found a new. And doing the podcast is a fantastic way to have amazing conversations with people that know so much more than I do about stuff I'm really passionate about. So it's been, it's been really, really fun. Definitely check out Film Baby Film if you're listening and you haven't checked it out. Especially I'm, my episode that I appeared on. 
That was awesome. Did you see Ben? Ben Fritz uh, responded. Ben Fritz fucking listened to it. I was like, holy shit. I hope we sounded okay. Yeah, he didn't correct any any mistakes that we made, so I felt pretty good about that. But yeah, that was that was excellent. No, we had a we had a great conversation and probably the shortest episode I've ever recorded, which I was not expecting. <laughs> well, we were trying to be tight and focused and on point, but it's a huge thrill when somebody who's written for the Wall Street Journal and written a great book about the competitive landscape takes notice and at least who knows how much of it to listen to, but it's, it's very flattering that he at least uh, gave us a little thank you, et cetera. And yeah, he, he's, a, he's a major powerhouse when it comes to understanding the business of, of, uh, of showbiz. So yeah, that put a huge smile on my face, just seeing that he at least took notice. And I do want to just say one last thing. I've recently joined, I still have some work to do, but I've recently joined a small, a small network of all just independent, not sponsor supported, just a bunch of really passionate movie lovers that have banded together with like different YouTube stuff and and uh, podcasts called Twenty Fifth Frame Media, and that's of course a lot of the people that uh, uh, that you're friendly with. Uh, we were just talking off mic about Aaron West and Criterion now, and he he is uh, uh, spearheading that, and he invited me on. So oh, very cool. It's yeah, it's cool to be with a lot of like-minded people. It's uh, it's great. Nice. Well, let's switch gears. Lucino Visconti. He's a giant topic, and he's got a lot of different periods to his career. He's not without his his personal controversies and specifically his rivalry with Federico Fellini. Tony alluded to it. I had no idea, so I did a little bit of homework. And sadly, the only documentary I could find on their rivalry was completely in Italian without any subtitles. But from what little I've gleaned, there's definitely a competition for resources, a competition for talent, for composers, for technicians. And there's also a bit of a culture clash in terms of different cities, different classes. Obviously, Lucina Visconti comes from a very old family. He can trace his bloodline back to the days of Charlemagne, like 1,200 years ago. He was unto the manner born, and Federico Fellini was not. But I do enjoy these like behind-the-scenes pissing contests between great artists. <laughs> and was, that, that was fascinating. But at some point, I guess I'll have to just learn Italian so I can watch that documentary about his career. But how would you invite people into this world? Like uh, Maybe the best place to start is just at the beginning. Like Who the hell was this guy before he became a world-renowned filmmaker? Oh, gosh. So Visconti is a bit... I always think of, I always think of Visconti and Bergman together for a few reasons. And it's... Um, one of the main reasons is Visconti wasn't just a film guy. He also was a theater guy and as well as uh, he he was a dire- he was one of the most famous and successful directors of opera at La Scala. And obviously Bergman really loved the idea of opera and actually did Magic Flute uh, as one of his later movies. And so th- what they have in common is that they would both have amazingly interesting lives, even if they had never made a single film. And yet both of them obviously went on to make many, many great films. Um, But Visconti's personal life is like the next level of Bergman's in that Visconti, Visconti traces his family heritage all the way back to Charlemagne during a couple of centuries, you know, 13th to the 15th century. The Visconti's ran Milan with an iron fist. Uh, Machiavelli talks about, you know, one of the Count Visconti's and uh, yeah, this guy's family goes back hundreds of years before Shakespeare ever wrote a single play. And so that's just, a, you know, that's a little mind boggling for myself as a, as you know, 
essentially white trash Americans. Like most filmmakers don't come from these no. wildly extravagant origins. I, there are probably a lot of dilettante independent filmmakers who make movies for a couple hundred thousand dollars a pop because they're independently wealthy and that sort of thing. But very rarely do we see people with claims to royal heritage uh, kind of slumming it in the world of showbiz. Right. And so he had that on his father's side. On his mother's side, she was she came from an extremely wealthy bourgeoisie family. They owned a pharmaceutical company. And so his mother and father married. The assumption is that it was an arranged marriage because his father, like his grandfather uh, uh, before him, they were homosexual, bisexual, uh, certainly fidelity to a woman was not a high-ranking virtue for them. And so uh, that marriage happened. And so Visconti just grew up in an insane amount of wealth. In addition to that, also deeply cultured, his mother was a musician. Visconti recounts having to wake up early in the morning to play the cello. And La Scala, you know, the most important and most famous of all the opera houses in the world, was like a block down the street. And Visconti's grandfather was the president of La Scala. And Visconti claims that he was born one hour before showtime ah. at La Scala. So it's it's just a family steeped in, in theater and opera and drama. And their personal lives were both very luxurious and they were very famous, but also uh, very melodramatic in their private lives as well. Gotcha. Well, he's one of those interesting personalities where – he at least seemed to appreciate the ideas of communism, but he also had like a personal butler who would bring his menu to him every morning. <laughs> and like, you know, he smoked 120 cigarettes a day and sometimes would forget to pay his crew. So instead he would give them like <laughs> like handkerchiefs that are worth 10,000 lira. I mean, he was a true aristocrat. And, and sometimes when you see these guys like Jean Renoir who are like, oh yeah, I'm a communist, but anytime I need money to make a movie, I just take one of my father's paintings off the wall and I sell it. It's like, well, that's not like a real communist. You're kind of like... An intellectual communist, but you've got all these other resources to fall back on. So it's not like you're in the trenches, like, you know, fighting for your common man, et cetera. So I always find those um, kind of limousine liberal contradictions to be kind of humorous. <laughs> and, and, and But, I, you know, it's also kind of like adorable and charming in a lot of ways. But it seems like as he got older, he got more and more interested in creating stories and films depicting that world that he comes from. Mm. Whereas his earlier earlier days, you know, whether you're talking about Rocco and his brothers or Ossessione or whatever the case might be, we're definitely more concerned with the proletariat, etc. Yeah, his film his film history definitely has an amazingly interesting dichotomy between his neorealism, this is class warfare and everything's going to be in black and white and no sound stages and all that good stuff versus the most operatic films ever made. The the and sometimes he would make one and then the other. So this juxtaposition, yeah, he was and his entire life was filled with these contradictions. I mean, you really can't he's just the he's such an interesting contradiction, the Marxist aristocrat, the red count. You know, this is a guy who is associated with the most beautiful and luxurious women ever li that ever lived. Maria Callas was totally in love with him, but he was also associated with the most beautiful men that ever lived. Um, yeah, no, there's – and so I think the one thing we do want to say about his background and about his communist membership is that he wasn't always a communist. And this, this sort of like – 
this sort of transition between uh, political parties and going between fascism and communism, all this other stuff, just these conflicts, these many inner conflicts play out through all of his movies. So it's really, I think it is important to stop before we get into uh, when he starts actually making films to say before Visconti met Renoir in Paris, which right away, the fact that uh, Coco Chanel introduced Visconti to Renoir in Paris. I mean, yeah, the he, guy's life is so insanely he's romantic. Hanging, he's hanging out with the beautiful people. Yeah, totally hanging out with the beautiful people. He got to work on A Day in the Country, which is one of my favorite yes. Renoir films. I mean, I've, I've seen that at the film forum and I've seen it on VHS. It's hard to find. It's only like 45 minutes long. It's more like a, almost like a novella turned into like a lengthy short film. But I think it's one of Renoir's strongest. But, but apparently uh, Visconti was there on the set as they shot it. Coco Chanel fell in love with Visconti. Visconti then got introduced to all of the people in Coco Chanel's circle, uh, including including uh, Jean Cocteau and Renoir. And up until that point, the aristocracy – so Milan is a northern Italian country, and that aristocracy considers itself like sort of German, sort of French, as well as Italian. And so – he and the fascists were really popular amongst the aristocracy because law and order and they had a tremendous amount of respect for the aristocracy. And so there was it's I think he I think Visconti admitted, although he didn't really like talking about it, that he was um, fascist or was at least fascist leaning uh, through much of that period. Like late but then 30s, he, early 40s. Yeah, well, yeah, oh, yeah. So he claimed that he, as soon as he met Renoir and started hanging around with all the all the beautiful people in France, all the beautiful um, uh, proletariat fil- artists and film workers and all that, that he immediately became a communist. Uh, and so that would have been around 1939. And there's probably some truth to that. However, he was still really close to Mussolini and especially Vittorio Mussolini, uh, the son, up until really um, Benito got kicked out and got arrested uh, around 43. And so it's a little bit it's a little bit tricky about exactly when he turned. But his you know he certainly ended up on the right also, side. He, he was, was making movies in the early 40s like Ossessione. Yes. You can't get a movie made in Italy if you're fighting the powers that be. So he definitely was, it seemed like he was in a very diplomatic way looking after his own interests, but he did successfully get a film made during the time of Mussolini. So obviously you can't be considered too much of a radical at that time. Yeah. And that's, that is, so there are so many contradictions even in this story, right? So he's working for Cinema, uh, which is the um, journal that Vittorio Mussolini was like, so, you know, I'm doing air quotes right now, was editing. He really just had the name on the uh, on the magazine. And so, yes, he did have Vittorio Mussolini's sort of signature and support for this movie. But as soon as Mussolini saw it, the younger, the son, as soon as he saw it, he he runs out of the uh, the movie theater and yells, this is not Italy. And immediately everybody tries to get the movie destroyed uh, for a number of different reasons, not least of which is the movie is uh, – I haven't seen it, but from everything I've read about it, the movie's pretty pretty homosexual. Well, it's The Postman Always Rings Twice. It's, it's yeah. basically an unofficial adaptation of The Postman Always Rings Twice, which has been done obviously with John Garfield and Lana Turner as well as with Jack Nicholson and uh, Jessica Lange. And it's a cool story. It's a different interpretation of it, but it's showing a side of Italy where at that time it wasn't the most glamorous side. It's basically like a truck stop and this mechanic who's a former soldier – 
kind of sort of befriends or starts working for a guy and also falls in love with his wife. They decide, all right, how do we, the plot is, how do we kill this guy, stay together without turning on each other? And ultimately it all ends in tragedy. And it couldn't be released in America for decades because they basically didn't get the rights to the Kane <laughs> novel. But people call it the first neorealist movie, but when you watch it, and for me, neorealism is the bicycle thief and his room open city. Like there's certain like essential ones. It's definitely... If for you, neorealism means non-professional actors and no studios, then certainly it has a certain gritty realism to it. But for me, it just yep. feels like a down and dirty film noir in a lot of ways. But for me, my, 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 I'm, not, I'm not super interested in neorealism, but I like all the Italian movies <laughs> that moved away from neorealism are the, the Italian films that I really love. But yep. Ossessione is a down and dirty little thriller in a lot of ways. So it's, it's, it's a pretty entertaining flick. I, I dig it. Yeah, so and that was obviously a big part of it. So before, really, I think why people like to point at Ossessione as such a great break for neorealism, or at least like one of the really important precursors, is because up until that point, a person like Visconti would make a white telephone movie where it would just be fancy rich people talking, and they would have all these contraptions that normal run-of-the-mill Italians wouldn't have, like no idea what they are, and those were the style of the movies. And this is a completely different style. So, uh, but to finish up the story, so Vittorio Mussolini is like, get rid of this movie. The church consecrates movie theaters after they show it, you know, to show how poisonous and satanic this movie is. But Benito Mussolini, you know, El, Il Duce, he loved the movie for whatever reason. And actually, it's one of the movies he took with him to the Republic of Salo when he started his whole little thing up there. Um, so... Just in a, and this is a period where the people that worked at Cinema, they were mostly anti-fascist, like on the down low. And so they didn't trust Visconti. So the question of exactly when he completely turns and he would eventually become a communist, like a full-on card-carrying member of the Communist Party, as well as somebody that, you know, uh, uh, risked his life for the partisans and for the allies in Italy after 1943. So he is one of... You know, unlike, for instance, Ingrid, Ingmar Bergman, uh, who didn't really figure out what was going on in the world until too late, um, or not too late, but until later on in his career, he, uh, you know, Visconti saw what was going on and made the right choice and certainly was on the right side of history for that. Um, so this is the guy's life. And we haven't even discussed, you know, with the exception of Assessiotti, we've only discussed one movie of his and his movie, his life has already filled up like three novels. Yeah, he's a fascinating guy, and I, I know a lot of people love to point fingers and judge people these days, but I feel like until you've walked a mile in somebody else's shoes, it's always a yeah. mistake to judge people, and especially when you're living in a time of such insane political turbulence, and there's the ebb and flow of history, and people are dying all around you, when people start getting up on their high horse about what people were doing in order to survive mm. or get by or try to start a career at that time, I just feel like they... Um, they don't know what the hell they're talking about, and I just feel like, yeah, don't don't throw stones if you live in glass houses. So I'm thrilled that he eventually figured out that being with the fascists probably wasn't the coolest thing. <laughs> but even if he had stuck around a bit like longer than it was fashionable, like in the case of like a Bergman, I know Bergman, he was kind of a Nazi sympathizer there for a little while, which is obviously yeah, yeah. not too cool in hindsight. But once again, it's like, you know, my grandfather spent a huge chunk of his life getting shot at by Nazis, but I, I try not to be judgmental for anybody who is living during these wildly turbulent times that we can't even begin to relate to here in 2019. 
No, and it, and he he certainly lived through the entire thing. So I think now that we're you know now we transition and start talking about some of his movies, you're going to see so many of those contradictions, such a sense of history, but also sadly like such a deep pessimism about the you know humanity's capacity to like sort of break out from uh, some of the negative patterns of the past. And I think perhaps he had like a privileged perspective on that because, you know, when he's saying the the elites and the aristocracy are always going to co-opt the revolution, he knows a thing or two about that <laughs> because his family's been doing it for hundreds of years. Yeah, it's a rare privilege to actually have a filmmaker who knows a little bit about the world because I feel like a lot of times saying uh, most filmmakers when they make a movie about who are like, insanely rich people – they're approaching it almost from like an intellectual standpoint, but they haven't necessarily lived it and breathed it. But when you watch a movie like The Leopard, they're like, all right, well, he kind of knows the way these guys live and breathe and he understands this universe. But it's funny how he's always either doing dirt poor people in the present like Rocco and his brothers, or he's doing astronomically wealthy people like in the late 1800s, like in Ludwig. It's always like these two extremes. It's like rich in the past or poor in the present, but very rarely, I guess maybe a conversation piece would be like the one exception of where it's present day and it's wealthy eccentrics and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But it seems like in the present day, he was always very concerned with the struggles of people. But Italy was going through these crazy fundamental changes in the 50s where it was Hollywood on the Tiber. It was this huge influx of cash from Hollywood, movies like Cleopatra being shot over there. And you also had this eruption of so many great filmmakers and so many great film artists, and so many great movie stars. It must have been just the most heady, exhilarating, intoxicating time to work in Italy like in the 50s and early 60s, where you had the best filmmakers in the world all traveling from all around the world to work there and make movies there. I can't imagine what it must have been like, but it's just interesting seeing how he's able to navigate the, those waters and make movies like Senso and Rocco and his brothers, you know, wildly different movies in tone and style. And so I, I do enjoy his flexibility as an artist and his eagerness to tackle a wide variety of topics. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So he has a... Oh, no. It, when he gets into the 50s and 60s, uh, movie sets where he – his movie sets were – people were speaking in Italian, French, German, English, and they were dubbing the hell out of everything poorly often. But, um, yeah, no, it was such a cosmopolitan – just – he was like the center of the star universe in uh, in Europe, no question. It was absolutely amazing. Um, but before he gets to that point, he does a couple of uh, – he does a couple of important – I think that they're yeah. So uh, La Terra Trema is clearly a like a, a classic sort of pure um, form neorealist film, and that was uh, that was uh, it's a pretty amazing film for people that haven't seen it. Um, it. It had to play in it had to they had to include subtitles even in Italy because they shot it using the Sicilian dialect, which is not necessarily comprehensible like easily comprehensible to everybody else. Um, it's sort of like, I guess, um, heavy patois or like some some Jamaican English might be really hard to understand. You might put subtitles on that. And also, um, I know like it was pretty common for uh, these Italian actors to be dubbed in Italian by other Italian actors. Like Claudia Cardinale was dubbed by a lot of other Italian actresses, even when she was appearing in Italian movies. So I guess it's funny how like in America, obviously, we have accents. But never in a million years would you dub somebody from L.A. so that people no. from New York can understand them and that sort of thing. But yeah, obviously, there's. I mean, when I was in Spain, I remember we had like the 
local dialects. Like if you were in Valencia, the Valenciano and things like that. And there was like slightly different spellings and variations. But yeah, I guess that's one thing. Italy wasn't always one country. It basically mm. was unified in the 1800s. So you have all these different countries and dialects kind of clashing together. Well, yeah, absolutely. Jump ahead to Senso when uh, Countess Livia goes in and wants to report her lover. They ask her, well, are you Austrian? And she says, no. She doesn't say she's Italian. Yeah, she I'm, says, I'm Venetian. I'm Venetian, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they're very specific. But I, I can relate to that. I've, I've met many people from Texas who they're Texans, <laughs> Texans first, Americans second. Or I've, I've met some people from South Carolina like that where the, South Carolina is such a badge of pride. Or if they're from Charleston, like, you know, like they're yeah. from Charleston, not, not forget South Carolina. So people definitely have their regional pride. So for people that really want to watch some, like, pure form uh, neorealism, check out La Terra Trema. I will say the one thing, and I think a lot of critics have shared this, is that the uh, voiceover, which actually is a voiceover done by Lucchino Visconti, is a little off-putting, and it's a, it explains probably too much. I didn't really, it didn't really bother me the first time, but after I watched it the second time, it makes it too obvious. Oh yeah, it's that part of it's tough. And then he also did before. So Senso is his first real dramatic operatic film. Uh, I like and, Bellissima. But, though. I saw Bellissima with yeah. Tony's recommendation, which is the closest thing he ever made to like a lighthearted comedy. But yeah, it's uh, Bellissima's delightful. And really, this is just the opportunity to watch Anna, Anna Mignani just, you know, for any strength, uh, length of time. That's that's pure happiness. Although it's it's got some cruel, cold-hearted humor in there. I mean, one of the funniest sequences by far is also one of the most malicious where she's in the projection booth with her little girl watching all these guys just jeering hysterically at her daughter, bawling her eyes out on camera and if you have a mean sense of humor, you will laugh hysterically too. And if you're a kind-hearted person, your heart will go out to her. Or maybe uh, a bit of the two, but that was uh, an interesting one to discover. I'd never even heard of uh, Bellissima until Tony brought it up. Because Tony's got some very strong opinions, both positive and negative, about Visconti's mm. movies. And I did, but I, I was paying very close attention to the ones that he was praising. And he definitely gave a shout out to Bellissima and Desenso. So I, ma I made sure to include those on my to-do list. Yeah, so the... Um I, my introduction to Visconti was The Leopard on Criterion, as I think you know, probably half of the people that uh, have really gotten into Visconti probably start that way. But then I began to watch a lot more of his films. Uh, so the Film Society of Lincoln Center this last summer had a retrospective and brought in – all, you know, brought in prints from all over the world of Lucchino Visconti films, some of which uh, haven't been in the United States for 15 years. Uh, and uh, But I live in Boston, and so the Harvard Film Archive ran a, a simultaneous one. I think the creative directors at both of those, uh, they sort of coordinate some of their, some of their programming. And so uh, I actually saw Bellissima on the big screen and was – at that point I'd seen some more Visconti uh, – and so I was expecting a certain thing and got something totally different, like a lighthearted comedy from Visconti. Not lighthearted. That's that's going too far. But lighter it is than a... Ludwig. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's teeth were rotting out at any yeah. point during Felicima. Yeah. So it's um yeah, it's uh it's absolutely worth watching. Adam Mignani just can she can sort of do no wrong. And I know that that movie was very much focused on her. Visconti knew her for a while. Visconti actually stayed with her the when he was on the run from the fascists during World War II. And they arrested him uh, while he was staying with her. So they went back 
quite a time before he finally made a movie with her. And this is really just a, this is a starring feature for her. And she was allowed to just be herself. Yeah. I saw in an interview where he said she brought so many incredible ideas to the table and her ability to improvise and come up with brilliant Mm -hmm. scenes just on the fly, just plucking them out of the air. He was just totally floored by her inventiveness as an actress. Yeah. Just, uh, she just has quicksilver, uh, a wit, and sense of humor and her emotional range. And I don't mean emotional range like, hey, one day or one scene I act sad and then the next day, next scene I act funny. No, it's within the same within the same scene, within the same sentence. She goes from teasing somebody to laughing to uh, uh, being in a brutal confrontation all within a blink of an eye. And it all seems not even natural. It seems like it's just instinctual. It's really impressive. Yeah. Uh, it's a great love song to movie really making. Movie. They're showing, I think they're watching mm-hmm. Red River. I can't remember, but they're watching a Western outdoors and she's just completely swept up by and caught up in the fantasy of this otherworldly experience, especially given the kind of mundane, uh, austere surroundings. And this guy's like, this is all make-believe. This is all bullshit. But she's just completely falling under the spell. And at one point when she's having a total meltdown about trying to get her daughter into the movies, like these filmmakers are all kind of shaking their heads like, this is what we're doing to people. So I think it's a great little commentary on the explosion of the Italian film industry, even as early as 1951. But I think they were just getting started. I mean, like the next 10, 15 years was going to be basically a movie-making renaissance in this country. Yeah, and uh, Visconti is certainly a part of that. So his next film is... think of Visconti and you think of operatic and you think of massive films and you think of melodramas, uh, Senso is the first Visconti film of that kind, 1954. And it's important to know that around this time he had started getting uh, 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 directing assignments at La Scala. Uh, Like I said, the most famous, uh, uh, most important opera um, opera house in the world, and it was is in Milan. Is that where they shoot the opening scene of uh, of Senso? No, it is not. That's La Fenice, which is in Venice, which is also a very important and very amazing place. And there's so many great stories about about Visconti shooting in La Fenice. Uh, he so he's an aristocrat, and he directed like an aristocrat. So he would walk in, 
and just a total he just had a total force field of creating his reality and making other people step in line with the reality he was trying to create so he gets to shoot at la fenice for some of the uh, the opening sequences uh in senso which are absolutely amazing clearly uh, La Traviata, which is the um, which is the opera that is playing, is also indicative of the story that we're going to be getting going forward, and uh, it, it's actually shot in the opera uh, in La Fenice in Venice. And apparently, when Visconti showed up, he said, "All right, I want to do this big dramatic opening where we're going to lower the chandelier." And for people that have been to the Met or some other of the uh, of the great opera houses, the lowering and the rising of the chandelier is, uh, is the thing that happens right before it starts. Very dramatic. And so uh, Visconti comes in and says, yeah, we're, so we're going to lower it and rise it, and that's going to be the opening of the movie. And the people at La Fenice said, we can't do that. We, have ne- we haven't lowered this since we added electric lights 50 years ago. We have no idea if this is going to work or if the chandelier in this place is just going to break and you're going to destroy the place. And he said... Look, one of us is a count and one of us is not. So who do you think who do you think is going to win this? And eventually they did. They lowered. <laughs> and the and the best part is it doesn't even end up in the movie. They cut directly to, you know, one of the highlights of the opera, which is when um uh, uh which is when the uh uh there's a song and it's it's Verdi and so uh, Verdi is so associated with the Risorgimento and the reunification of Italy and Italian pride and there's a you know this really rousing song I think it's in the fourth act or at some at some point where he says to arms to arms and uh, that's that's basically where it opens up and people go nuts they start throwing you know the tricolor uh, 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 the all the Austrians are there and there's fighting between the Austrians and the people that want Italian reunification and so they start throwing all these red white and green confetti around and there's a oh it's so dramatic it's so wonderful yeah the opera seems like because this takes place late 1800s and it's it's incredible how like parts of Italy were almost considered like parts of Germany at, at, at different times, and it seems like yeah, between like Austria and Prussia and Bavaria, how the the borders were kind of nebulous and so on and so forth. And I, I just I started to realize just how little I was paying attention to my modern European history class. I mean, as a <laughs> sophomore in high school, I took this uh, it was it was honors modern European history, and I can vividly recall when we started talking about the Italian unification, and I just completely just daydream throughout the entire like, call. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Probably should have been paying attention because I don't know what the fuck is going on. So I had to like hop on Wikipedia and try to at least get some some broad strokes about what it was like at that time. But yeah, it seems like, you know, aristocrats are getting uh, kind of flirty and grabby with each other up in the up in the mm. rafters and there's all sorts of drama between the soldiers and it's it's a beautiful environment or setting to have a tragic love story unfold. And so yeah, Senza for me it was as like baroque and operatic and beautiful as a movie as say like Children of Paradise. It's it's incredible. It's one of those essential kind of criterion experiences that you definitely need to have. And Farley Granger, who I usually despise because I hate his voice, the beautiful thing about watching Visconti movies is that they're all dubbed. So I got to have Farley <laughs> Granger dubbed in Italian, and all of a sudden I was like, hey, Farley Granger, he's 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 not bad at all. I like Farley Granger quite a bit dubbed in Italian. Yeah. So it's uh. It's Alita Valley, who uh, I think at this time was most famous for Third Man. She's cinematic Viagra. She is hotty toddy. <laughs> in my brain, she's most famous for Suspiria. Oh, she's as, great in that as well. She's a little older there, but yeah. But in Third Man just, and in Senso, she is a ten. 
Yeah, she still has the crazy. She still has the crazy eyes. She looks different in Suspiria, but she still has the crazy eyes. And um, she must be the worst ballet instructor ever because they those people could not dance in that movie. But yeah, so it's Farley Granger and Alita Valley. Uh, interesting. Did you hear the so they Visconti wanted it to be Ingrid Bergman and Marlon Brando. Indeed. Rosalini, though, was one of uh, yet another one of Visconti's rivals, and he wasn't about yeah. to let his wife act in one of his rivals movies. So, I mean, I, can you imagine how? Because I feel like having great competitors definitely drives you to greater heights. As they say in MMA, like iron sharpens iron. You need to have great rivals and competitors to inspire you to, to work harder. But when you've got fucking Rosalini and Fellini and De Sica and, and fucking Antonioni and all these people mm. all around you, Pasolini, I mean, the, the number of like genuine, true masters of cinema that are all emerging and doing the best work of their careers at the same time, going to work must have been stressful as hell. It's like, God damn, I got to be fucking brilliant because my, or my competitors are just going to eat me alive. Yeah, so this is something, so I've read primarily biographies of Visconti and stuff about the individual movies, and this isn't something that comes up a ton. I obviously picked up on it uh, listening to Tony Stella talk about it. Um, but what you do hear about it is when they would, sh- when Visconti and his crew and Visconti did, he had like an entourage. They were people in Italy, Italian filmmaking that were Visconti people. And they would show up at Cannes film festival. And if Visconti didn't win, which he only won once and Visconti expected to win every single time he made a movie. Yeah. And when he didn't win, and especially if Fellini or another Italian won, yeah, there was a lot of mean mugging. His his He was, you know, because he's the count, because he's aristocratic, he doesn't necessarily get involved with it. But yeah, he certainly sicks his... It reminds uh, me of like hip-hop <laughs> stars and their posses. Bass and Jay-Z. Yeah, when they just yeah. like, they do not like each other and they have these insane rivalries. But once again, the net positive is that we as the audience get this renaissance of all these incredible movies. So, yeah, you don't want to be the one guy working in a vacuum with nobody to measure up against. I mean, even like Tarantino has talked about how after he saw Dairy Blood, he had a, a moment like a, of clarity. He said, I need to up my game. Holy shit. Right. Paul Thomas Anderson's gotten so good and it was inspiring. And I feel like on any level, whether you're a novelist or whatever, I feel like that's so enormously important. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I think at the beginning, I think I said that the opera was La Traviata. It was not. It was Il Travatore. Oh, God so damn you. Wanted, you yeah, just, sorry. I just wanted to. <laughs> credibility <laughs> lost. <laughs> no. So and, and this movie is this movie is truly. So when I first watched this movie, I really didn't like it because I thought it was so melodramatic. I, and I love melodrama. And that's why I like Visconti so much. This is like. This guy does melodrama, but this one just felt over the top. The acting felt so mannerific. I do not like Farley Granger, and I really don't like him in this movie. What's your least um, favorite Farley Granger performance? Oh, this. Interesting. I, yeah, for me, it's Stranger than, uh, Strangers on a Train, which is a movie I love and adore, but every time mm. he speaks, I want to like throw hydrochloric acid in his face. <laughs> the only thing I like about Farley Granger is he... Uh, he is he was he was also he was also gay and he wrote a book and he's very catty very gossipy book about Visconti they, well they had a huge falling out he left the movie at one point and reading him talk about the movie set he really dishes cuz a lot of the people you know another another comparison to Bergman and Visconti is this is a, Visconti was a guy who was not afraid to 
help make myths about himself to tell five different versions <laughs> you know of the the number of times he sold his mother's family jewels to finance movies i mean i you would it sounds like something that would only happen once but in Visconti's world, it happens like three different times or whatever. Um, the people that worked for Visconti all told differing myths about him. And so to have somebody who was on the outs with him that knew him really well and to just, you know, give the dirt, there's a there's a catty, gossipy part of me that really – Gotcha. <laughs> well, speaking of people that worked for him, Francesca Rossi and Franco Zeffirelli were assistants yeah. on this movie. So it seemed like a great – and Italians, I think, had a particularly great tradition of this. Japan and Italy both seem to do this where you have all these great cameramen and assistants around who eventually go on to start their own careers. But this idea of being an apprentice beneath your mentor and, and learning from one of the great masters, it seems like a great tradition has been honored quite a bit in both countries where you see all these guys like Bertolucci, who would obviously later be great working for these great masters at this time, or Dario Argento, or whatever the case might be. And that's a tradition that I really respect and admire. But in an interview with Zeffirelli, he said, Visconti was notorious for not paying people and was notoriously difficult to get money out of. And once again, if you didn't mind being paid with a handkerchief, then he was delightful. They learned a lot, but he was, um, yeah, he lived in his own world. Because if you've never had to worry about paying your bills, it's going to be hard to relate to your crew members who have those <laughs> concerns. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this, and yeah, and this movie is just above and beyond. So not only are they shooting in La Fenice, they're shooting in Venice. And there's so many scenes uh, 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 that take place in Venice that are absolutely gorgeous. The choreography on the war sequence when uh, they're in a field of – when the Italian – I think it was the royalist soldiers were in the field of hay. So the Italian and, royalist soldiers were not the Garibaldi forces, correct? No, So, but they were all – they were all – had this very loose – Alliance, which I think when we get to the leopards, you see that yeah, that with, uh, Alan Delong, his, his character, how he's more than happy to change the color of his uniform for the perks of being a royalist. Yeah, so there were uh, the people that wanted to unify Italy were royalists behind the Savoy House, the Piedmontese, uh, and so there was a you know a constitutional monarchy that wanted to support this. But then there also were the Garibaldi, and they were sort of considered revolutionaries of some sort. I'm not super familiar with his politics, whether it was like socialist or what the deal was, but he certainly had a more revolutionary reputation. But then there were also people that just wanted to have a democracy, just wanted to have a republic. And all three of those forces were fighting to have Italy reunified. Um, and then the people that would be positioned against them, of course, would be the Bourbons in the south. And then in the north, it would be the Austrians, which is uh, this movie. And then, and I don't know that it really comes into play, but then the Papal States. So actually, the Pope of Rome he had military. He had military forces. So it absolutely a Game of Thrones type situation. Super hard to keep track of. And I think that's part of it. Like that's intentional. I think Visconti is communicating. There really isn't a difference between or maybe the royal house. He just assumes everybody's as sophisticated and worldly and has read no, up as much as he has, and they can keep track of all the these subtle nuances and details. Whereas ignorant Americans, who were as admittedly were falling asleep in their modern European history class <laughs> twenty five years ago have a little trouble keeping track. But at the core, this is a tragic love story between this Austrian yeah. officer and this Italian aristocrat who basically she gives up everything in order to pursue her her paramour only to see that he's complete scum. He's a coward. He's used the money to basically buy his way out of going to combat. He's shacked up with another girl. He's a drunk. He doesn't bathe. And I, I really like these movies where people are just absolutely 
destroy themselves for the sake of love and kind of stumble off into the night just going completely insane. I, I, I admire just how dark this movie was willing to go. I think one of the... And there are so many themes. So Visconti was definitely an auteur. He definitely had a personal style. He had a couple of styles, perhaps, but he definitely had things that he was really focused on in his life and focused on in the literature that he liked to consume and focused on the movies he wanted to put out. At this point, and really going forward, I don't know if it's something he got from opera or if it's something that he got from his own personal life, but this idea that people essentially choose to destroy themselves and drag down so many other people around them is something that will come up throughout. In this movie, it's two different people because on the one hand, you have the Countess who is rah-rah, you know, go unify Italy and then throws it away for like a guy who is clearly, I, you know, just doesn't give a shit about her and what those reasons are why he doesn't care about her. And, but just immediately, she just immediately throws away everything. And I mean, not just her husband, because who cares? Not just her cousin, because whatever, family. I mean, her country and this dream. She just throws it away for this guy. And then he, in turn, destroys himself because, I'm sorry, there's no question in my mind that he knows in his drunken state when he confronts the Countess Livia that if he keeps on pushing her buttons, she's going to lose it. Yeah. And he is at this point, he is a deserter. He is in such living in such peril, and I think he pushes her until he knows she's going to do something to him. So this is the first of, you know, that isn't the tragic flaw, you know, from from Greek tragedy. This is I am going to make a choice to destroy myself and potentially destroy a lot of the people around me, and we'll see that time and time again, like the played damned, out in different ways. And, yeah, Ludwig, yeah, absolutely. Even the even the leopard, uh, I would suggest that uh, uh, the Don Fabrizio, he had when he has that conversation with um, with a representative of the Savoy uh, at his at his place, and he talks about how all the Sicilians just want to just want to slowly die away or, or he, well, he says like they don't want to change because they already think they're perfect and that that's one of my favorite scenes of the movie where this this idea of like the culture they they're so in love with their way of life they can't even begin to acknowledge that there might actually be some flaws but there's totally thanatos in that because you hear him and he's like saying yeah we long to go back to sleep we long to die because we are gods all this stuff it's like what why are you passing up the chance to take the senatorship you could actually have real influence whether for good or whether for self preservation so this did it this remind theme, you of bostonian culture at all <laughs> <laughs> it's it's absolutely amazing this uh yeah no there so this is the first movie where that really and maybe it happens in Assessioni as well i don't i don't know i haven't seen it but this is the beginning and it really just plays out through almost not every single one of his movies but pretty much every one of them continues to go out somebody's going to make a decision that will destroy themselves and perhaps everybody around them and on top of that sacrifice their country sacrifice cl entire classes of people like the proletariat oh it's so delicious it's really it's good stuff so what else do you know about his flicks from the 50s because i haven't seen anything else between this and rocco and his brothers i'm a blank slate yeah it's lenote bianca the white knights and uh dostoevsky it's a it's a small film and he says a couple of times he says you know i took breaks and did small films an absolutely beautiful set he's so famous for shooting on location and really getting access to locations that only, you know, a guy whose last name means Viscount can get access to. But this was just an amazing, gorgeous set 
uh, in a studio. I think it was Chinachita, and just absolutely amazing. Uh, Mastroianni is in it, and uh, it's just it's a it's a small it's a dreamlike movie. Definitely worth watching. I would suggest every single one of Visconti's movies are worth watching. Um, and it won him the Silver Lion. But really, you know, Rocco and his brothers is another gigantic film uh, that he comes out with in 1960. a good time to talk about some of his interest in literature because it seems to come up again and again with his film adaptations but authors like Thomas Mann and some of these other guys he seems to take a ton of inspiration much more inspiration from literature than from film I don't think I've seen in a single interview Visconti talking about a filmmaker he admires apart from Renoir but his literary influences are they run very deep and it seems like Rocco and his brothers was partially inspired by uh, some literary sources but it's also, a, the title's a combination of Thomas Mann's Joseph and his brothers with, I don't know where the name Rocco comes from, but it's basically, it was a, a subtle allusion to Thomas Mann's novels, the fact that he made it Rocco and his brothers. Yeah, and also, again, Dostoevsky comes up, people think it's sort of uh, an Italian version of the idiot. Ro- yeah, Rocco, Saint Rocco. There's oh, is that so where the name many- Rocco comes from? Does it come from the idiot? Uh, I don't think the name comes from the idiot, but uh, uh, the some of the storyline. I'm not sure if it's Simone's storyline or if it's Rocco's storyline. But there's also that portion is taken in. So there's all these influences, and even the Old Testament story of Joseph and his brothers uh, certainly plays a part. Yeah, no, Visconti was Visconti was an awful student. Always ran away and just he, he, you know it's hard to tell the count. Uh, what to do, uh, even at a young age, and so he was constantly running away. And was it? But he always was uh, autodidactic. He was. Uh, his family was surrounded in culture. When he was in France, and he had one of his first uh, uh, really famous love affairs with this guy Hurst P. Horst. He said that Visconti traveled around with two books, or three books in his pocket. Two of them were *Death in Venice* and *Remembrance of Things Past*. And so this was a guy constantly reading. Well, uh, the first half of the 20th century was a very easy time to fall in love with literature. I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. I, granted, I'm I, my my preference for books is all 20th century, but as an 
English major, most of what we read was in that that first 50 years. Yeah, and like, so the teens, 20s, and 30s, which is a particularly lush period. So I can totally understand why he would be such a literature fanatic. Yeah, I mean, his day would typically end after he'd after he'd been on the movie set and smoked about 120 cigarettes. And that's a lot of smokes. That's you know, six packs a day. I mean, you basically are lighting one cigarette, one end off the other, the entire day, except for when you're eating or shitting or going to sleep. And perhaps no, and perhaps he was <laughs> did not stop smoking while he was no, and he was. And there's so much mis- there's so much contradictory information with this guy because, like I said, constant myth maker and the people around him were constantly telling tall tales. And I love that stuff. But one of the few universal commonalities between people's descriptions of him is specifically that number of 120. He smoked a lot. And so any anyway, but so his Even after day a stroke, would be- he kept going. I mean, yeah, if strokes are killing you. Yeah, but I mean, I remember when I was 17, I sat down, I was like, you know, I'm going to smoke a pack of cigarettes in one sitting just to see if I can do it. Because I was at an all-guy boarding school, it was very rural, we had nothing to do, and I was sitting down by the river, and I, it was a pack of Camel Lights, and I just went one cigarette after another, and I felt ill from it, but those are pretty light. I'm sure he was like, had like a, a gold cigarette case, like embedded with diamonds, with like, you know, 120, like hand-rolled, pristine, very strong, very thick, very powerful cigarettes. So these were, <laughs> these are not like marble or ultra lights that he was smoking. So uh, these are 120 real cigarettes. Oh yeah. And so, and then he'd have dinner. He'd probably have 20 people over for dinner. Or even if he didn't, even if he just dined alone, he probably had his chef prepare for 20 just in case, uh, just totally nuts. And then he would stay up all night reading. He would, he would, he, he loved to read in that he never allowed his really frenetic pace of production. And he did truly considering the fact that he was doing theater and opera and his movies, just a frenetic pace. Uh, he'd never allowed that to get in the way of his love of literature. And so, yeah, absolutely. And he was again, aristocratic and didn't really have a sense of, uh, his obligations to others the same way that most people should. And so he would just not credit you. He would do, he would do your novel, his first two movies. He did not credit <laughs> the, the, the novelists. Um, yeah, no, he wasn't That's above a that stuff. Italian then, tradition though. Like they love to steal <laughs> movie ideas. They love to steal book ideas. So it, it's almost like a form of flattery, but you know, whether you're talking about fistful of dollars or whatever the case may be, but unofficial sequels and ripoffs are absolutely in the Italian tradition of cinema, whether you're an aristocrat or a peasant, whatever the case might be. So I don't know if he was necessarily any worse of an offender on that front than some of his uh, his peers were, because it just seemed to be running rampant throughout the entire industry. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, no, this is this is a movie that has risen in my estimation. Senso, this, and we'll get to later, Death in Venice, which I'm deeply conflicted about. But Rocco and His Brothers is my favorite. Like, this is, for me, this is oh, the nice. one where I think if... It, it, if somebody, if I hadn't seen any of his movies and somebody were had the, were to have the best chance of making me fall in love with his work, this would be the one they should start with to show to me because it's basically a Scorsese movie in a lot of ways where you can see so much of what Scorsese basically borrowed from or was inspired by or took from. It's like... Mean Streets and Raging Bull and Who's That Knocking at My Door all rolled into one. And I can't imagine what it must have been like to be a young Italian-American filmmaker like Scorsese or Coppola or whomever. And to see this play in New York in 1960, it must have been like a creative hand grenade going off in their imagination. And just the style and the emotion and the characters, it's an incredibly moving story. And I started watching it on iTunes only to realize I was watching the half-hour truncated, dubbed, shitty version I switched over to Voodoo. They claimed it was in Italian. Once again, it's the dubbed, shitty, truncated version because a half hour of this movie was chopped out. So finally, I said, fuck it. I'm buying the Blu-ray. And I got the three-hour, pristine, beautifully restored Rocco and his brother's experience. And I was completely, utterly floored by it. 
Yeah, no, I have the Masters of Cinema, and that's the that's the only version I've ever seen. And I, so when I first saw it, there was a part of me that thought this is really again the melodrama of it seemed to be too much. Now it's when you hear me talk about the Damned, you're gonna say, why on earth would you <laughs> like why would and nothing is more melodramatic than the Damned? But for some reason, it just didn't click with me the first time. Now I watched, I, I rewatched it actually today before our recording of this. And the horror of what occurs uh, in this, uh, those those two specific scenes in this film, are just impacted me so much this time. Also, obviously, that this is one of those movies I'd seen. I've seen all the Scorsese and Coppola films before I saw this movie, and there's a part of me that when I watch it, I'm like, "Wow, you're really cribbing a lot from Scorsese and Coppola." Like this is this is a lot of the the brothers in The Godfather um, certainly have similar interactions. You know, the the tank top that uh, Sonny wears it seems like, like it's stolen. And Johnny Boy and Mean Streets are very clearly borrowed from this arrangement as well. I mean, yeah, but I, I, for guys who grew up in America but had those Italian leanings. And yearnings. Mm. This must have been just like the most intoxicating experience to see for both of those guys. Yeah, this and the leopard. I think there's no question. The Italian American filmmakers, you know, the big name ones. Certainly, they must have absolutely loved these movies because there's just yeah, they're just transported over into it, and it's really, it's really impressive. And you can see why. You can see why when you when you watch this film, it's it's got it all. It's got the the boxing sequences are really impressive. Hell yeah. with real crowds. They look like Raging Bull. Um, like you can tell, like, oh. as I was watching, I'm thinking like, God, Raging Bull comes 20 years later, but it's yeah. shot in an almost identical uh, lighting style. Yeah, absolutely. And the relationship between the brothers, um, rewatching it a second time. So I didn't realize I'd never, the first few times I watched Visconti films, I did not know that he was homosexual. And so I didn't pick up watching Rocco and his brothers. I didn't pick up any of that stuff. Rewatching it now. I mean, of course there's Alain Delon and he's one of the best looking handsomest uh, European or really just any actor anywhere. Um, and but then rewatching it and watching the way that the camera looks at Alain Delon lying oh, down. Oh, like they're taking a shower and the manager's like talking to oh, him. And say, yeah. The, no, no. Oh, and the, the shower scene. Well, Visconti was not in the closet. He was not trying to hide any of his pastimes or interests and that sort of thing. And obviously, you get toward the late sixties, early seventies, he's even more overt about it. But at a time like, especially in America, where you could just be arrested for vice for being. Yeah. Uh, committing a homosexual act, he gave zero shits and just wore it on his sleeve and never felt uh, the need to hide it in any way, shape, or form. And you see it increasingly in his movies. But Alain Delon, he said that uh, Visconti taught him everything from scratch. Because whenever I think of Alain Delon, it's easy to think of all these amazing movies that he made, like The Samurai. Like Le Samurai. Mm -hmm. But he got his start somewhere, and he says that Visconti really took him by the hand and taught him his craft. And it seems like so many actors like Alain Delon and Romy Schneider and all these extraordinary performers were incredibly devoted to and loyal to Visconti throughout his life. Oh, no question. And of course, Romy Schneider actually met Visconti through Alain Delon because they were they were engaged or they were closely connected. Hottest couple during, in showbiz. Yeah. Could you imagine? Oh, my gosh. Uh, no. So. So yeah, so the movie is has so much going on in it. Several, you know, the storylines of the different family members. There definitely is the political aspect of this is not as is not as heavy and as focused as in say La Terra Trema, but it is still definitely there, particularly after um, after Rocco gets out of the military and yeah. comes home. It's, it's Hicks and moving that, to the big city looking for opportunity. Yeah, and they they come from nothing and they're just trying to survive and get by. And some of the brothers work hard, and I don't know if I've felt this much emotion toward a single character in years, but I felt such deep 
antagonism and hatred toward is it Simone or Simone? How do you say his name correctly? They say it's Simone. Simo- and Simone. We can probably just but say Simone. Simone. But Simone oh. I, I can't remember the last time I felt such feelings of rage, whether he's raping his brother's girlfriend right in front of him or stabbing her to death or beating up his brother and chasing him through the streets. I just kept wanting something horrible and horrific to happen to him, which is a terrible thing to feel, especially when like you don't ever get what you're hoping will happen in the movie. It was incredibly, it just kept filling me with rage. But in the end, that's what movies should do. Movies are about emotion, like all craft, all history, all everything aside. If a movie's not giving you an emotional response, like what are we doing here? And the emotions I felt watching this movie were almost overwhelming. I hate Simone and I have exactly the, and there are so many hateable Hate, detestable people in the Visconti verse, but he is he is the one that I hate the most. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's not like it's not like he's entirely. It's not like you can't identify with where any of his feelings come from. It's not like he's he is a real human being that just went out the wrong door. But it doesn't matter the things that the things that his insecurities the things that his uh failures and his his harmed ego drive him to do to people that i really care about this time i really care about rocco i really care about uh what is it nadia the the uh, annie gerardo the prostitute i care about them so much and they're just about to get their lives and and do great things and he just he ruins it for everybody involved. By the way, not only does he make all three of those people, I would suggest, including Rocco, make decisions that harm themselves. There's no reason why Nadia should ever have had anything to do with anybody in that family after Rocco ditches after she gets sexually assaulted and then Rocco ditches her. And then what the hell is Rocco doing telling her to go back to his brother? I'm sorry. I don't care what kind of saint you are. That is just you are just asking for trouble and creating trouble in other people's lives. Another example of people, for whatever reason, being the, the architects of their own destruction. Yeah, I mean, oh. that, her, her death scene is it's terrifying to behold. It's so drawn out and it's so violent and it's so gruesome. And she's just clawing her way through the mud, trying to get away from him. It was absolutely horrifying. And the idea that this movie got released in America, where most of this got cut out, it's like, well. What's the fucking point of the movie if you cut all this stuff out? But I, I mean, 1960, nothing like that had been seen on the screen in Hollywood. Not since like the days of like pre-code with like freaks, like the Todd Browning film. I, I can get why people would have found it so shocking. But I hope that guys like Scorsese and Coppola were able to see the the, the entirety of the film, like some special mm-hmm. screenings in New York, because yeah, that the three-hour cut, goddamn. It, and also, it's so lovingly restored. It looks like it was shot fucking yesterday. Oh, it's it's absolutely amazing. So, and we do have to talk and really make this clear. Italy is not just one. You like you said, it's a country that has really been formed in the last 150, 175 years. Uh, had been all, all obviously the Roman Empire uh, uh, sig- historically significant, but for much of the interim, it was city states and different areas. And really, these places are like different countries. And so, where where Rocco's family came from in the south probably even now probably they make half as much 
as as Milan, which is where Visconti was from. Milan is the richest part of Italy. Could, you know, think of uh, uh, the most yeah the most poor area of uh, you know somewhere in the deep south, and then just moving and starting to work at Wall Street. I mean, but it's, you feel like when they first day they go to the gym and they tell them to go into the locker room to get changed, <laughs> and they come out and they're basically wearing like long underwear covered in holes. Like they don't have stuff to change into. Like what are you talking about? Like they have their underwear and they have the, their clothes they wear and they kind of share everything. But you you really feel the poverty they've come from i was a poor kid and i can tell you when i played football and i had to i didn't get to have a practice jersey i had to wear like some crappy t-shirt to uh to my first football camp yeah no i didn't go back to that football camp until we could we could buy a nice no i that was so familiar that is i'm really glad you called that out that's great no this movie is uh there's a reason why this is I think this and the leopard are probably the two most famous viscontis this was I, my introduction was the leopard, and I w- I'm in the small minority. Most people agree with you in that the g- best introduction to Visconti is uh, uh, Rocco and his brothers. But I'm I'm a fan of the next movie as an introduction. I think the leopard, uh, you know, the the Italian, or really the European, Gone with the Wind. Hello. Occasionally, a role and a picture are so impressive that we behind the camera want to shout about it from the rooftops. I have just been privileged to work in such a picture. The film is The Leopard from the celebrated bestseller, and it provides one of the most challenging roles it's ever been my good fortune to portray. The beautiful Claudia Cardinale and Alan Delon are also starred under the masterful direction of Lucchino Visconti. As you know, The Leopard won the Golden Palm Award for the best picture of 1963, at the Cannes International Film Festival. So it is a fitting offering to come to you from 20th Century Fox, who also gave you The Longest Day and Cleopatra. A stunning visualization. Nostalgia very similar to Gone with the Wind, says Bosley Crowther of the New York Times. That's a fair way to put it. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's a historical epic that's not necessarily concerned with sweeping battles and, you know, grandeur. It's like a, a character-driven drama that's at the same time a historical epic, and it kind of stands alone. There are not a lot of movies quite like it. It's one of the most lush, lavish, gorgeous films ever made. And if you take a single frame from any point in the movie, you could put it on the wall of the Louvre. I mean, it's a stunning achievement. Burt Lancaster was never better, and it's probably one of the most profound movies ever made about a society in a state of transition ever made yeah and of course there are there is a great action scene in this uh, when the garibaldini come to palermo and face off against against what this is who's a soldier and who's a civilian like everybody's fighting like the women are dragging guys off and lynching and stabbing them it's like who's on which side like what the fuck's going on here like the guys in uniform i can kind of tell but everybody's right. fucking throwing down priests like homeless people it doesn't matter like everybody's getting involved oh yeah you can tell the the bur- the bourbons the bor- no it's yeah it's pronounced the bourbons you can tell the bourbons because they all walk around like they're very well organized there you know when you were in american history class and you learn about the redcoats uh, obviously they're not redcoats here. It's the Garibaldini, the rebels that are wearing red. But when you hear about when you hear about the British fighting against the Ameri- 
Americans, it's always, you know, the British would line up and they would get into lines. And they'd be very orderly and that's how they'd fight. Well, that's how the Bourbons would fight versus the Garibaldini, the rebels. They're all running around ragtag. They're, it looks like they're wearing jeans and their shirts are made like their excess shirts from the streets of Argentina, you know, completely like dyed in, in red tea and buried underground for like uh, two weeks in order to make it look like like the shirts really looked. Um, yeah, no. So the action sequence is impressive, but there's no question when a movie has a 45 minute or an hour long ball sequence and it is absolutely gripping. It is just amazing production values and dramatic value. You know that a movie is successful when it has a guy like me uh, totally entranced by that. And that is, you know, that's what we have here in The Leopard. Yeah, Scorsese included in his top five movies. I posted an interview recently. He said, well, it's hard for him to, you know, land on specifically just like a top 10 list or a top 50 list or whatever. But he said five movies he keeps coming back to are Searchers, Citizen Kane, The Red Shoes. Um, oh, shit, I'm forgetting the fourth. The Leopard was the fifth. What was it? It was The Red Shoes, Citizen Kane, The Searchers. As another Italian movie, eight and a half. That's that was the other one that he mentioned. But yeah, so he had two Italian movies in there, but that really caught my attention when he called attention to the leopard and, and placed it all on those other ones. And I'd seen it and I was really impressed, but I seeing it for a second time, it really got I really got to absorb it in much more much more um kind of satisfying way. But apparently it was based on the best selling novel like in Italy's history. So this was a story mm. that obviously people were craving and ready for. And I'm sure if I had even the slightest hint of understanding of Italian history that I would appreciate it on far more levels than I do. But there's so many brilliant scenes where it forces you to question your assumptions about who would be on which side and which political struggles. Like there's a great hunting scene where Burt Lancaster's out hunting with his guide and his guide obviously is not under the manor born. And they've got some interesting, conflicting ideas about where their loyalty should lie. And he has this incredible line where he says that he loved being a faithful subject of the monarchy, whereas now he's just like, you know, a peasant or whatever the case might be. But it's interesting. You would think, oh, if you're a peasant with like a constitutional monarchy, that at some point you would want to like rise up and like overthrow your masters. But it shows that on some level, some of the peasants took a lot of pride in being a subject of this ancient regal bloodline and things like that. So I enjoy scenes that challenge your assumptions about what people might think based on class. Well, yeah, and the novel is written, so Prince Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa, uh, an actual uh, Sicilian uh, aristocrat uh, who actually, sadly enough, so he's right, he wrote this and it got published after he, posthumously, and he was the end of his bloodline. And so not only had his had his aristocratic lineage, not only had they lost a lot of their money, their uh, their villa, their palazzo had been destroyed in World War II bombings by allies. So not only did all this stuff happen, but then they just died out because all the, and there were plenty of people in his generation that could have continued the lineage. They just, none of them had children that survived. And so, so he, and he was a conservative. So he's writing from this conservative perspective of loving the aristocracy. And then you have an, then you have Visconti through his lens of, yeah, he is aristocratic and he shares some of the nostalgia that, um, uh, that I think Lampedusa has. But at the same time, he's also a communist. He also has this sense of he would probably support somebody more like Garib uh, Garibaldini. Wait, am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, I think the name, his name is Garibaldi, Garibaldi. but the yeah, Garibaldini sorry. are his followers. <laughs> so, oh, man, there's so many there's so many different facts and stuff I'm trying to remember. But, yeah, so, you know, 
Visconti probably sides more with somebody like Garibaldi. But at the same time, he sort of knows this is the way history goes. You know, the the, the rich and the elites, they're always going to win. And even when they don't, they're just going to get replaced by new – you know, sure, maybe you replace the lions and the leopards, but you're just going to get jackals. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, that's that's the, the sad irony of most revolutions is that you end up replacing whatever you're overthrowing with something – just as bad, if not worse. And that's kind of a, it's the, the more things change, the more things stay the same. And I love Tancredi in this. I love Delon in this because he actually, he represents that. So it's uh, another thing that'll come up in a bunch of the movies that we're going to be discussing uh, following this are, you know, these relationships between older men and younger men. And it's going to be this weird interplay of, do I want to be you? You know, does does uh, Don Fabrizio want to be Tancredi? Does he want to be Tancredi's father? Or as we get into later movies, and there's still a little element of that here, but as we get into later movies, it's do does the older man want to be with, with the younger man? And so there's this weird interplay. And so even though we're in – I mean obviously you like the Burt Lancaster character. There's no question that the leopard, that Don Fabrizio, this is like – I am I'm with him the entire time. It's sort of like Tony Soprano. No matter what Tony Soprano does, I'm like I'm sort of in my own weird way like cheering for him. Yeah, even if he's murdering Christopher, you're still kind of <laughs> on his side. Spoiler alert if you like haven't Christopher's, seen the last season. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually one of the things I was thinking about. Yeah. No, and so so yeah, he's the patriarch of the Sicilian aristocratic clan. He's played by Burt Lancaster. Obviously, that's who you're cheering for, even though, like, should you really be cheering for him? But so he supports Tancredi, but Tancredi is totally somebody that's really ready to switch his alliances at the drop of a hat, and he does not give uh, he does not give a shit. He has no if, strong principles. He goes where the prevailing no. one, but he wants to be successful, and he wants to have a, yeah. a, a an important life, but he doesn't necessarily care about which side he needs to be on in order to make that happen. But he's a more of a realist. And uh, he has that incredible line, like, if we want things to stay the same, everything has to change. Where it's just some people who are incredibly wealthy and powerful uh, want things always to stay the same, and they resist the, the tides of history, and they get completely obliterated. I mean, a movie like The Magnificent Amberson is a perfect example of this incredibly wealthy family that just gets utterly annihilated by the arrival of the automobile and the changes of society. But if you can bend with the ebb and flow of time, then you might be able to reposition yourself for power, wealth, prestige, etc. as time moves ahead. And obviously, Alain Delon wants to bend with the wind as opposed to resisting. Yeah, and but during that ball sequence, he has that. And obviously, you're looking at the interaction of, of the three. You're looking at the interaction of Don Fabrizio. You're looking at the interaction of this introduction of like, Claudia Cardinale is now going to marry Tancred. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, no. So and so Claudia Cardinale is going to marry Alain Delon again, two of the best looking people in the world. And, you know, it, it, the bourgeois is lining with the aristocracy and all this. Yeah, because her father good... is wealthy, but he's he's like the equivalent of like nouveau riche, kind of like white trash. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. new to his money, but he represents the future in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. And he's Sicilian. He's he's local. I mean, he you can totally see him eventually being part of the mafia when the mafia gets introduced, which will happen, you know, in the decades after after when this movie takes place. You could totally see somebody like him uh, uh, rising in, in in that scenario. And so, yes, you see all this stuff going on and it's a passing of the torch and all this other stuff. And it seems like hopeful almost in a way. Like there's a part of me that wants the this wonderful aristocracy to carry on and, and to incorporate all these new elements into it. But then you see Tancredi talk about 
shooting the deserters. And he just uh, he's like, yeah. So what if they were the people that I was aligned with before? Shoot them all. Or joking about the possibility of raping nuns if they hadn't been quite oh so old God. and decrepit. Like one of the most <laughs> hysterical but also savage scenes in the movies. He's telling the story about finding this church and all these nuns are basically they assume they're about to get they're about to get just raped within an inch of their lives. But they're just they're these old crones, and so these soldiers decide like you know like don't worry like etc. We got to go off and fight in a battle. Blah blah blah. That's where he ends up getting his eye injured. And then uh, Claudia Cardinale asked him to continue the story, and he basically says like, well, if you'd been there, we wouldn't have to worry about the nuns. I- I'm butchering the specific anecdote. But the assumption is, or the presumption is, had she been there, he and his buddies would have raped her within an inch of her life. And she just starts laughing hysterically. It's like the best example of gallows humor I've ever seen. And she can't stop herself. Like everybody starts like mm. kind of getting up from the table and she's just like laughing hysterically. And yeah, it's a, it's a very bleak, but very humorous little moment. Well, that moment's amazing too, because, uh, the aristocracy is all horrified at her laughing fit, but yet they sat there saying nothing when Tancredi was telling this awful story. Yeah, no, it's it certainly sort of shows where their where their values are at, more about how you're acting ne- less necessarily than how are you treating the people in the world. And so we get to the and there's so many interesting things that happen in this movie. It's it's uh, totally epic and um, you know, traveling d- during war because they have to they have to go to their summer cottage, war be damned, they don't care and just so all these little amazing touches, but the you know, the real epic part of this is the end when they get to the ballroom sequence, which is like, I think in the book, it's a few pages, but Visconti says, no, this Stretches is, this it is out to like 45 be. minutes. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> but it's incredible. It's exhilarating. To watch. It's incredible. And I think we should just say a little bit about his attention to detail because his attention to detail here is insane. Uh, they have, they shoot in a real palazzo. Um, they have four to 500 extras which is crazy, and apparently many of those extras were actual local aristocracy, and so they just said, "Hey, bring all your friends. <laughs> we're gonna dress you in some some period era clothing, and you'll do some some waltzes." And he had such an attention um, to detail. You'd wear period underwear, even if it wasn't gonna be seen on camera. Everything had to be period accurate, no irrespective of the expense. So yeah, I just love how he took it to the most intense extreme imaginable, even if it wasn't practical to do so. Yeah, notice the candles in this uh, as the sequences go. So first of all, he had to get special candles made because they were that he wanted candles lit in every single room. So they're shooting in like but lights in a film melt oh, melt yeah. the candles. So yeah, they can't because the lights are hot as balls, and so yeah, your candles are just going to disappear. <laughs> so they have special candles made, and then they make sure they would stop the shooting to make sure every single candle uh, in the place was lit, even if it wasn't necessarily going to be in the shot, or even if it wasn't necessarily in focus. And in addition, if you notice as the dances go on. As the, as the ball goes on, the length of the candles are shortened. So at the very final scene, all of the candles in that room are like two of their nubs. They had a good point. continuity expert. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Flowers in every room had to be fresh. And so he he legitimately bankrupted. <laughs> he bankrupted. And this was his second time doing this. This is the second time he had bankrupted a company that had bankrolled one of his films. He took four weeks to shoot this ballroom sequence when it should have only taken one because of his attention to detail and his, the way that he ran his schedule. Yeah, But it's a great nuts. passing of the baton. Like, Burt Lancaster is so glamorous and so 
like courtly, and, but he's obviously aging out, and it's, but you know, but passing the baton to Claudio Cardinale in this next generation, it's just a majestic moment. But what blows my mind most about this is the screenplay. Even obviously with translations, a lot of times things are lost, but there's so many astonishing quotes. Like at one point, he has this incredible line. Uh, Prince Don Fabrizio Salinas says, "I belong to an unlucky generation, a stride between two worlds, and ill at ease in both. And what is more, I'm completely without illusions." Now, what would the Senate do with me, an inexperienced legislator? who lacks the faculty for self-deception, an essential requisite for wanting to guide others. No, I cannot lift a finger in politics. It would be bitten off. I mean, that's some beautiful fucking dialogue, and it tells you so much. And I, I, the older I get, the more I appreciate a well-written screenplay, great structure, great dialogue. And the dialogue throughout this is just solid gold. Yeah, yeah, no. And like I said, that sequence, rewatch that and just look at, this is a man who is in some way, giving up on his life and giving up on the world. He, regardless, whether he wants to be a revolutionary or whether he wants to just protect his self-interests, why on earth wouldn't you join the Senate of this new constitutional monarchy? Why on earth would you let the local, you know, Mayor Nouveau Riche guy do it when you, ultimately, he's going to own all of your land if you don't, if you don't stand up and fight, and he just says, you know what? No, I, I want it to pass. I want other people to take over. And that, and and, he, and it's not like he's doing a great service for the common man. You no, know, he's doing nothing. He's just he's just deciding this is it. I'm done. And it's just another one of those great Visconti heroes just saying, you know, I'm going to destroy. I'm going to destroy this. I'm going to destroy this whole thing. Are there any and I don't filmmakers care. alive today that you think could make a movie like The Leopard? Because as I was watching, I was thinking we oh. see a lot of period dramas and we see historical yeah. epics and they pop up here and there, but there are certain films that I feel like just come from, um, they're just a lost art form in terms of the generational values or the the values of that time. Like a movie like Lawrence of Arabia will never get made again. A movie like The Leopard probably will never get made again. But I was thinking like, which filmmakers have even the raw ability to mount mm. such a production like The Leopard? No, unless Prince William and Prince Harry somehow like align with Christopher Nolan or Martin Scorsese, no, that the I get what you're saying now. No, that film is not. This film is not getting made by anybody that's going to have actual actual knowledge and actual yeah. appreciation the sad of this. byproduct of extreme wealth is a lack of ambition sometimes and a lack of creativity. <laughs> like there're not a lot of people who are have more money than Jeff Bezos or as much money as he does who want to indulge and create. Like obviously we to get to it in Ludwig where he wanted to build castles and like you know commission works by Wagner. But sadly if you have a shitload of money, you end up spending a lot of time like hunting and playing polo and you know going shopping. But I wish there would be some extremely wealthy like Arab who were just like, you know what? I want to make like the most brilliant films ever fucking made. It just sadly, <laughs> a lot of wealth ruins your motivation and it, it kills your ambition. And Visconti was certainly not like that, right? Like we just discussed two of the biggest, at least two of the biggest movies in Italian film history. And at this point in his filmography, Visconti is 63 years old and he's going to live like 13 more years. And in that 13 years, he's going to do what? Seven more movies. 
I think he directed 11 operas in, you know, England, in Austria, uh, it, at home in Italy, and he was doing contemporary theater. He was up on what the new, you know, what Arthur Miller was doing in the 60s. But they say he was oblivious to what was going on in movies. Like, the French New Wave, he had no, no idea it even existed. Oh, yeah. Like, he was completely, utterly uninterested in what other people were doing. When it came yeah. to technique and technology and his peers, he was like, whatever. So that I find very yeah. charming, that he was just Me completely, too. totally willing to write off an entire movement going on in Europe at that time. I think he said Bunuel was the only, was the youngest revolutionary alive, and he was 68 years old. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, he he and yeah, he was still doing the the quick zoom, you know, the far zoom. He never uh, gave it up. <laughs> if anything, he started to rely on it more and more. And in, in his late 60s, early 70s movies, those those fucking zooms that he uses them often. The innocent, the innocent. It seems like he's making a joke. Like it seems like a spoof that he's using it so aggressively. I've yeah. not seen the innocent in its entirety. However, because I'm a lifetime, uh, if you pay a, a one-time lump sum, you can be, I have a lifetime subscription to MrSkin.com. I have seen the scene from the innocent involving Laura Antonelli. This was his last movie from 1976. And those scenes with her and Giancarlo Giannini, Hotty toddy, God Almighty! That's a, that's steamy stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm of the I'm of the mindset that it is not super easy for me to see stuff in you know uh, in movies that are like super titillating. But there, certainly, The Innocent, no question. It's like the only other thing that compares to some of the stuff in The Innocent is you know uh, Helen Mirren, uh, the young Helen Mirren. Like there's yeah, The Innocent is insanely erotic uh and kind yeah it's kind of amazing and i guess depending upon what you find erotic some of his other movies might be i mean if you're a total freak you might find the damned erotic it's got like incest and gay orgies and all kinds of crazy shit going on so yeah to each their own everybody's got different tastes and preferences so that which reminds me we so we've already talked about the influence that he has on the italian americans obviously also had influence on bernardo Bertolucci and uh, lena vertmuller if you've seen seven beauties clear influence influence there but now uh, and we're going to want to i think we need to as great as sandra uh and the stranger are i think we need to you know definitely make sure we discuss the damned frühling kommt der sperling biebt duft aus blütenkelchen bin in einen mann verliebt und weiß nicht in welchen ob er geld these are the von essenbecks these are the cannon makers. These are the damned. And this, the son who inherits it all. Go away, mother. What do you want? Everything. I want everything, mother. And I take everything, everything that belongs to me. The young Baron was seen coming out of a club. One of those clubs, you know. I'll take care of it. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. To cut the world's throat, you need gold, steel, and treachery. One family had it all. The von Essenbecks, the cannon makers. The damn. It's he who killed your father. Tell him! How many shots did you fire? One, two, three! Oh, you can tell him now. You give him everything. Everything that belongs to me. My factory, my money, my house, brick by brick. Even my name. 
and your love. It's you I hate! Ah, you can't imagine the evil I wish will destroy you. Martin! You must realize that today in Germany anything can happen, even the improbable. And it's just the beginning, Friedrich. Personal morals are dead. We are an elite society where everything is permissible. Let's get into the dark, more depraved, more unhinged and uninhibited stage of Lucchino Visconti's career with his German trilogy, which starts with The Damned from 1969. How do you, uh, how do you want to make the pitch for The Damned? Because it's, uh, it's a movie that Rainer Werner Fassbender said was his all-time favorite movie. But there are other yeah. people who find this movie to be just filthy and rotten. I think I kind of fall somewhere in both camps where there are elements that I find just deliriously entertaining because they're so savage and so dark and so over the top. But this is we get into the part of his career now where he's not necessarily afraid to make his movies a little on the long side, especially Ludwig, who just a four-hour. But what are your thoughts on, uh, on The Damned? So as I mentioned earlier, so when the Film Society of Lincoln Center did their Visconti retrospective, they actually said that the Visconti retrospective was the most successful. They sold more tickets for that retrospective than any other retrospective they'd done, which is kind of amazing because I don't really think of – before 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 that, I hadn't really thought of Visconti as a guy that would drive a lot of ticket sales. Um, so when it came to the Harvard Film Archive out here in Boston where I live, the first movie – so I had seen at that point, I had seen Senso and the Leopard. Um, maybe I'd seen Rocco and his brothers, but maybe not. And so I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't expect anything different. I expected perhaps a little melodramatic, um, perhaps some historical – uh, uh, some uh, historical epic, which of course it has both of those elements, but man, I was not prepared for what I was going, what I was stepping into. I came into the damned totally blind and was just fairly early on completely blown away. Um, because of course we get introduced to helmet Berger in this film, uh, uh, who plays Martin and he comes out in, he comes out in the, you know, the most refined, it's, um, this movie takes place, it's in Germany, and it's um, towards the end of the Weimar Republic. I mean, it's actually on the night, really, where the Weimar Republic totally ends, uh, the the fire at the Reichstag. And, um, you know, there's this refined dinner at this. They're not aristocrats. They're kind of aristocratic. They're but they industrialists. Certainly act it. They're industrialists, and they, yeah. they're extremely wealthy. The company that it's based off is the Krupp corporation and the Krupp family. And that was, uh, the biggest corporation in Europe for some time. Um, and so you have this really fancy family gathering and they're doing, they're playing the cello, which of course Visconti was a cello player. So of course somebody's playing the cello in there doing these performances. And then Helmut Berger comes out dressed up as Marlena Dietrich 
and does a full-on drag performance. And it, immediately, I'm just thinking, what on earth am I getting myself into? What is this? His grandfather has the same response as he's watching it. <laughs> and for people who are, aren't familiar with Helmut Berger, Helmut Berger is one of the most beautiful people that ever lived. Very androgynous. Was actually Visconti's lover for... I don't know, a decade or something. He pops and, up in um, Jackie Brown. That he's a, the the oh, no version of that movie they're watching where he's slapping this girl. It's from like 1976 or so. Hang on, I'm, I'm going to look this shit up for everybody. But um, uh, when they say, is that Rugger Hauer? And they're like, no, that's Helmut Berger. That's the, uh, that's the scene. But the movie in question is, boom, 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 scrolling down. Beast with a gun, which is what they're with the when uh, Robert De Niro and Bridget Fonda are getting high and watching TV. That is Helmut Berger. They're in a Tarantino movie. Yeah, and when you see that opening, when you see that opening, I mean, obviously that's your antenna go up, and you start thinking, okay, so we're in Nazi era, and there's a guy, you know, performing a drag performance in the, you know, a setting which is not meant for that, and you're thinking, okay, this is gonna be this is gonna be some interesting things that are gonna happen. But it's also it's pure Visconti because you know it's a it's a wealthy family uh, sitting down at a table. Some of the first people we see are you know Charlotte Rampling, who looks about as regal and aristocratic. I mean that neck goes on for centuries. She's like twenty three or four at the time, but she's got like children that are like twelve years old. But we'll give them a pass <laughs> on that because it's just it's Charlotte Rampling. I, I, I love and adore Charlotte Rampling, so it was, I was thrilled oh, to see yeah. her in this. Young Charlotte Rampling could just uh, oh, no, sorry. totally She attractive. was 23 when she made this movie, but yeah, she, she was just getting Gorgeous. started. Yeah. Gorgeous. And she does. She just looks so aristocratic. And you see this, I, you know, then you see other elements that are sitting around the table. The S.A. Constantine, who's, you know, having his, having his very hunky butler really rub him vigorously in the bathtub. I mean, there are some things where you're like, okay, this is, this is a little bit different from what I've seen of Visconti, but most of it is you know, stuff that I've seen and it very quickly derails, um, you know, uh, and the cross-dressing performance, like whatever, like that, it was, it's Helmut Berger. It's, you know, it's really interesting to watch. But then, uh, after that, uh, you know, it's immediate. It's, uh, all of the worst taboos, not just taboos, like the worst crimes that other people can commit against each other immediately start happening. You know, there's a Macbeth scenario where they, somebody kills the grandfather and then is framing somebody. And then at the same time, Martin is uh, molesting a child. It's just immediately horrors begin to invade this very wealthy and very yeah, like The question is, household. how will this family adapt to the rise of the Nazi party? How will they work with them, oppose them, collaborate with them, etc.? And which family members are going to hang on to the power to make those decisions as they move forward? And as they move forward, increasingly, it is the most corrupt, deranged, fucked up members of the family that seem to be wielding limitless power until finally it's Helmut Berger this fucking deranged sociopath, child molesting motherfucking, quite literally motherfucking madman who seems yeah. to be the most uh, prepared for this new era. And the thing, and so going to the aesthetic of the film, the film is shot just as beautifully as any other Visconti coronation or ball sequence. He'll shoot the family sitting down at dinner just as beautifully as he ever would. And then when uh, Berger's character Martin trades in his you know, his Marlena Dietrich drag for a Nazi drag at the end of the film. And there's a, like a Nazi suicide death pact wedding. He shoots, Visconti shoots that just as beautifully. And so there's this, 
disconnect in my brain that's like, what on earth am I seeing? Like, why is this being treated so, you know, so beautifully when it's the absolute worst of humanity? And historically, that family was the absolute worst historically of humanity. Not only were they aligned with the Nazi party um, and, and supporting their war aims, but they were intentionally using slave labor when at one point the Nazi regime said, hey, don't use slave labor anymore. It's a security risk. They wanted to th- – this family in real life wanted to continue using slave labor. So they were really, really sick people and um, you know, the absolute worst of – if you're anti-capitalist, you could do you – you can't do worse uh, uh, for an example of how capitalism can ruin the world than looking <laughs> at the Krupp family and their influence. Well, what do you think about their depiction of the Night of the Long Knives? Which oh, is, thank uh, you. Which is one of the more wild, unhinged things I've ever seen on film because you've got this like 45-minute, long, sappy, drunken orgy between dudes with the soldiers just singing, dancing, boning, having, having a, the time of their lives. Yeah. And then all these guys come in with machine guns and just mow them down. And it, it, once again, I get Fassbender's exact quote was, Perhaps the greatest, uh, he called it perhaps the greatest film, the film that I think means as much to the history of film as Shakespeare to the history of theater. It seems like these that I think got Fassbender's attention or probably scenes like with Ingrid Toolin and Helmut Berger having, you know, mother-son incest. But something tells me these were the scenes that really piqued his interest in the film. James, I'm so glad I get to talk about this on your podcast because I think with uh, most other people, I'd be so nervous and you just, you know, yeah, no, that's, and so for me, I didn't know what I was getting into when I saw this movie. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty white bread heterosexual guy and I walk in and I know I like this filmmaker and then I see this and I'm like, oh my God, what is this? And it's wrong on every level. It's wrong on every level. So the people that saw this movie that were, you know, uh, other white bread heterosexual critics of the time, like my, uh, that would have been like more like me, they're saying, you know, oh, this is too gay. And then the gay critics were like, what on earth are you suggesting? Are you suggesting that, you know, sexual perversion led to the rise of the, I mean, it's such a bonkers, insane, it pissed everybody off. I mean, Lars von Trier should, like if Lars von, if we're going to be somebody making this today, it would be like a Lars von Trier just piss off everybody involved. A a deliberate provocation. Oh, this is so provocative and it provoked, it was, yeah, it was totally a middle finger. What's interesting about this is that beyond the fact that, you know, he's clearly, Visconti's camera is clearly intentionally shooting, you know, very attractive, like greased up, blonde men um and so it's uh it's really uh erotic from that perspective but then the flip side of it is this so i have the book the rise of the third reich uh uh i think maybe it's the rise and fall of the third reich by william shearer and visconti was reading that book while making this movie and so i looked up the section where it describes the night of the long knives and this is basically how William Shearer described it. Well, it's just maybe it's just a little old, good old fashioned love in the trenches. And, you know, you got the older soldiers yeah. and they like the younger soldiers. And, you know, who are, who are we to judge? And so, I mean, could you imagine being like a young, like, uh, 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 you know, uh, and I read r- reports of this. And so like Fassbender or like another young gay guy going into this movie and hearing that, OK, so I'm going to see like a lot of flesh in the movie and this is like great. And then he sees it and he's, you know, he's like, oh, shit, like what? what? <laughs> this is this is the, you know, beautiful young man I'm seeing. It's 
it's the most yeah it's the most it's not even taboo it's just it's just wrong and it's shot again it's one of these things where it's like it's this amazingly provocative and controversial and uh it's all this stuff and it's just shot within like technical perfection well, we're almost in like solo territory in terms of sheer yeah. outrageousness and for people who like movies that in a beautiful, gorgeous, ornate fashion, go into very dark, forbidden, taboo territory. That, that scene's going to blow your mind. Like it's, it's like yeah, pe no some question. people want movies to challenge them and take them to strange, dark places. And so, while I wouldn't necessarily say The Damned is my favorite Visconti movie, I pre I always am a fan of outrageous cinema. So it was during that sequence, which is just completely unhinged for like thirty or forty straight minutes. I was like, all right. This, I, I will not forget this movie. This would this would sear into my memory whether I like it or not. <laughs> and on top of that, the print that I saw didn't have subtitles for the German. Oh shit! Actually, you know, so I don't think my DVD did either. I think that was deliberate because his his movies are definitely there's a lot of fuckery going on in terms of which version you're watching for which territory yeah. and who he chooses to dub and who he chooses not to dub. And sometimes you'll see like. These movies are they're dubbed in English and in Italian throughout. It's it's kind of a strange, old-fashioned, haphazard fashion. So if you don't necessarily get all the dialogue, I think that's kind of par for the course. But it was so. There's this long stretch of this stuff going on, and there's I don't understand a word that's being said. It was it was it was surreal. It was hallucinatory, and I had no expect. I didn't think that you could do some of the stuff that Visconti does in this movie. Like I didn't think I didn't think people would allow you to do it. And yeah, I'm trying to think in the night. 1969 what would be apart from this something on that level that's equally outrageous in its depiction of sexuality and murder at the same time i mean i don't know when did caligula come out i guess late 70s so that, yeah, okay a decade so, yeah, later. So, yeah so, so this was one of the early ones because i mean this is obviously late 60s is right when things the floodgates are open suddenly movies like midnight cowboy are getting nominated for oscars things started changing very abruptly very quickly and in the 70s you've got a lot of this these crazy exploitation movies that combine nazi regalia and sexuality there's all sorts of crazy acts of pervasion i mean there's a the whole idea of like like there's like a Nazi subgenre of porn that was like huge with like Ilsa, Queen of the Devils or She-Wolf or whatever the fuck those movies were called. In any case, he obviously was um, a harbinger of things to come with this movie. Yeah, and I mean obviously uh, – so I'm actually – I'm just about to get – I'm looking at job offers right now and I'm actually making an acceptance – I'm accepting a job offer on Monday. I'm pretty sure actually I'm going to be moving to your neck of the woods. Oh, very cool. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, so in case this episode comes out before that stuff comes out, I just want everybody to know, obviously, all of this, it's like, you know, not acceptable. But in terms of, it, you know, if any other filmmaker made a movie like this, it would have a budget of like 500 bucks and it would look like crap and it would just be, like you said, it would just be like a provocation. That's the whole point. Yeah, he shoots but it like this, a leopard. Oh, he should. And there is such a, and so there are two aspects of that, right? On the one hand, this is a man who lived during a period uh, where, you know, he actually went and visited Germany in the in the early stages, like 34 and 35, and he genuinely was attracted, his sister suggests, genuinely erotically attracted to all of the paraphernalia and all of the um, tall pageantry of that. Yeah, it's a weird thing, like the combination of sexuality and Nazidom. It's yeah. it's a, it to this day if you go on Pornhub or xvideos.com and like you know Nazi porn billions of fucking videos are going to come up and I think because it's so evil and it's so fucked up and so dark there is a side of some people 
where you're the more taboo and forbidden something is, the more turned on you become. And so combining the Nazi philosophy, probably the most universally despised philosophy of the last hundred years with sexuality, that's the ultimate taboo. So I get it. It's not my fetish. I've got plenty of fetishes <laughs> that I won't admit on this podcast that I'm ashamed of. Thankfully, Nazi like you know, porn is not this is not my thing. But I yeah. get why people are drawn to that again and again. But I think the other part of it for Visconti, so there's there he risked his life fighting the Nazis as a as an Italian partisan. He's in a communist, anti-fascist. Like this, this is a major part of what defines his life. So obviously he had that period early on where it was just the pageantry and just the you know the good-looking Aryan men wearing hunky hunky suits. Obviously that all changes. And I th- so I think what we're getting is part of it is he's it's like the ultimate insult, right? It's like the ultimate insult to any of the people that were still fascist that think th- that have the fascist machismo. He's like, screw you. We all know what this really was. We all know which coming really from fucking each other behind, which the is re- yeah, which is a really complicated and really serious attack by somebody who is himself homosexual, and that works in that way. But it also works in the way of he is not letting anybody off the hook. He's saying, look, you have to watch this beautiful thing that I'm showing you and realize. This is what humanity did. This is what a huge portion of the humanity in, in, in this area of Europe got involved with. And while, you know, many people fought against it and many people were like sort of on the fence, there was a huge portion of people that bought in hook, line and sinker. And I'm going to make a beautiful movie that's going to show that and not let you off the hook and pretend like. Was the Night of the Long Knives just an attempt by Hitler to consolidate who his allies were and to eliminate his political and military rivals? Yeah, so the Night of the Long Knives. So one of the reasons I like Visconti so much, besides the fact that I love melodrama and I love the quality of his technical filmmaking, is I'm a trivia buff. I was actually on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and won a little bit of money there. Really? And so, oh yeah, no, like I want to be on Jeopardy and all that other stuff. And so Visconti is one of those things that you can learn about. And if you learn about Visconti, you learn about so much else. So I did. I learned a little. I learned a little bit about the the Night of the Long Knives uh, before this podcast, but. Uh, uh, one of the things – so what happened was Hitler rose to power with this paramilitary group of thugs that would do his bidding and you know would do things like set fire to the Reichstag and pretend it was the communists, like crap like that. But then they got too big for their britches and they decided that they wanted to like – they wanted to take over the military. And the German military going back hundreds of years, going back to Otto von Bismarck and even before that, very professional, very like this was a huge part of their history and their identity and was necessary. Hitler needed an alliance with the German military and the German military said, screw that. We want nothing to do. These people are, you know, fat beer drinking like uh, thugs and we want nothing to do with them. We're a professional service. And so the military and the SS sort of aligned Hitler actually sent the essay on this trip, the essay leadership on this trip sort of to delay making a decision about how he was going to, how he was going to come down. It was really right up until the very last minute. He didn't know what he was going to do. And at the very last minute, yeah, he ordered the night of the long knives and, you know, uh, killed. I don't know. I think, I think the death toll is uncertain but it's it was it was fairly serious a lot of people died that night um and it was totally a you know a game of thrones machiavellian power red, red wedding yeah oh yeah (laughs) 
two great artists of the 20th century. Thomas Mann, the writer. Lucchino Visconti, the filmmaker. Two artists combined to tell the story of an artist. Dirk Bogard is Aschenbach, the artist at the climax of his career, composer, conductor, maker of great music, suddenly alone. We once had one of those in my father's house. The aperture through which the sound runs is so tiny that at first it seems as if the level in the Upper glass never changes. To our eyes, it appears that the sand runs out only at the end. And until it does, it's not worth thinking about. Until the last moment. And there's no more time. Aschenbach, the artist at the crisis of his life. of the senses. It's all gone. Nothing remains. Nothing. 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 Your music is still born. Suddenly alone. Alone in the magical city they say is doomed to sink back into the sea from which, like Venus, it rose. Aschenbach, the artist at the crisis of his life, here faces the images of beauty and mortality. Why are they disinfecting Venice? <laughs> Go away immediately, don't delay. Please, I beg you. Take that seal and your daughters. I implore you, please. Venice is gripped by pestilence. Well, just in the interest of time, perhaps it's time to talk about Death in Venice, 1971, the second film in this German trilogy. What's going on here? Because it's obviously we are officially in Thomas Mann territory, who's one of his literary idols. Yeah, and so just more trivia. And so as much as The Damned is about as controversial a movie you can make, the, <laughs> you know, the only way you can really one-up it is to make a very personal, intimate like movie from the perspective of a man who falls in love with a young young boy played by a relatively young boy who I think was what 15 or 16 at the time yeah yeah and Bjorn Anderson I think was 15 but he was so so the the story behind the story is Thomas Thomas Mann or uh, Mann uh Mann had written the novella Death of Venice which I had known since I was in high school it was I got actually I signed it twice I think but I never read it same here. Yeah. <laughs> Same here. Never read it. I actually read it recently um, in, in preparation for the podcast. It's a really short book. Um, so, yeah, no, this is – and so 
Tomas Mann. Uh, a lot of people thought that this book was just a metaphor and people were, you know, sort of tiptoeing around the fact that it's a story about a, about an older man that falls in love with a young boy. And no, it came out in the seventies with his journals. Like, yeah, no, he seriously, he, Tomas Mann went on a trip to Venice, fell in love with a young man and um, his wife knew it. The young boy n- noticed it and eventually came out with his story and then wrote a book about it. Uh, and the book was about uh, an aging artist that went to Venice and, you know, the whole thing. Um, and he's a writer. The, he's a writer in the book, but he's a composer in the film, correct? Correct. Correct. And so that part of it plays off of Mann was partly basing it off of also uh, uh, Mahler's story. And so, yeah, you have all these different layers in in the film. And what what makes it so Visconti and maybe Visconti is made partially by his lifelong love of this novella is the connection between the body like the physical body of a human and the body like an actual physical body politic like the body of a city and so often it's about like social class stuff um the decay of social classes and the decay of uh you know somebody that's dying uh, like in Ludwig, here it's the decay of the city. Venice is a city that is actually sinking into the, you know, into the earth, into the mud. And at the same time, you have the decay of this man who's also, you know, pretty clearly, I think, in, at least in one way, he's decaying morally as well. From he's like, the word go, this movie just reeks of death. Like the very first yeah. shot of Dirk Bur- Bogard floating into town on that boat like this guy his number is coming up soon it's just a very melancholy very morbid film and it doesn't it's not immediately apparent in the film if you haven't read the book but this is a city that's about to be laid waste by cholera so it's just death is permeating every single frame of film throughout this whole thing but at the same time you have Dirk Bogard just lovingly and a fixatedly pursuing and following and kind of haunting this teenage boy who seems to be having a fine time wrestling with his buddies and hanging out in this striking dramatic poses. I don't know if you know how much, if he has more than five words of dialogue the whole movie, I, I'd be shocked and amazed, but he just strikes dramatic poses and Dirk Bogard obsesses over him. And yeah, the whole thing is just a very grim, melancholy, beautiful affair. Yeah. The movie is so, the movie is so sad and it's also, it's the it's the adagietto uh, from Mahler's Fifth, and that is some sad piece of music, and it just plays on for long stretches. This movie has n- not only does not only does uh, Tadzio barely have any dialogue, and perhaps you know basically none, but on top of that, nobody really has any dialogue. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just Dirk Bogard staring at the kid. Yes, yeah, Dirk Bogard yeah, just staring it's... at the kid and just caving in with desire and yearning and melancholy and all these passions and. It's a, it's a, it takes you morally into strange ethical kind of gray areas because I I always hate to comment on homosexual relationships when it's not really my business to do so, but I know that yeah. sometimes you will have older men who will be involved with younger boys who kind of escort them into the gay lifestyle, but you can get into very dangerous territory talking about this sort of thing because obviously you are at that point talking about illegal behavior. But it's one of those things where... Uh, it's 1971. This is fucking Italy. Like I don't even know what the rules were according to society or filmmakers at that time. But it's one of the things where you're in quicksand even discussing it because it's very easy to say something that can get you into some some very hot water. But the kid who plays 
the 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 object of his infatuation talks about how Lucina Visconti tried to just make him understand a little bit about what this world was all about and took him to a gay nightclub at one point and the kid said yeah he was looking around this room full of middle-aged men who were all looking at him like a piece of chicken that they were about to devour and yeah it made him he oh wow yeah he, I did not I have not heard that story <laughs> that yeah, is, he, that uh, is yeah, wild here's, here's the uh, the uh, the uh, the anecdote he says adult love for adolescence is something that I'm against in principle emotionally perhaps and intellectually I'm disturbed by it but perhaps because I have some insight into what this kind of love is all about he said that uh, I was just 16 and Visconti and the team took me to a gay nightclub almost all the crew were gay the waiters at the club made me feel very uncomfortable they looked at me uncompromisingly as if I were a nice meaty dish it was the first of many such encounters so yeah this the kid and the playing the part had quite an experience making this movie yeah so like i said like i'm i'm a white bread heterosexual guy but i so as i've been getting in it's really hard to be a cinephile i mean I, it's obviously possible but it's really hard to be a cinephile and not have some pretty serious appreciation for like a lot of queer cinema because there's just so much good stuff out there i went to sundance a couple of years ago and you know uh there i went into this great movie i think it was god's own country and like people walked out because they didn't know it was going to be it was going to be a gay film and i was just like what are you people doing like this is this is one of the best movies here at sundance this is awesome but that certainly is this movie was controversial from the jump and it was again it was one of those things where whether you were you know people that were i don't even want to say like me like white bread like they were you know there were people that were essentially homophobic that were putting out articles saying we don't like this movie because it makes the book too gay i think that's what's in the um dennis lim essay and there's in, no uh, sex in it it's not like there's like any like scene where like the kid sucks his dick or anything like that it's but it's just cra- but that's a crazy- looking at him from a distance and it's a, but it's a more of a crazy comment because you can't read the book and not understand that this is like yeah this is he didn't make the movie anything this is what the movie is but then on the flip side you had people that very rightly so like this is not this is not like queer positive none of his you know late films have any people that get to explore their sexuality and then don't die at the end now i don't know if that's just that was the way that you made movies and introduced that at this time or if that was a sign of his own conflict. Oh, tragic love affairs are just more interesting. And people love Romeo and Juliet. And nothing ends well for anybody in that. So yeah, I don't know. That's, that's it, also a big part of it. Yeah, like a real artist is not... I feel like there's people who are propagandists and there are artists. And propagandists make movies where, oh, we need to make sure everybody of certain demographics in this film is depicted in a positive light so that we send the right message. I was like, well, then you're not making movies. You're not creating art. You're an activist. And those kind of movies get dated very quickly. Or you can be a real artist like Lucina Visconti and follow your own artistic voice or be inspired by a great novel and yeah. proceed accordingly. And I, I don't think Lucina Visconti was remotely worried about making propaganda about gay culture. He was making the best adaptation he could of a novella by an author that he really admired. And Visconti, and so like I said, just totally controversial, every which way, left, right, and but it, the movie was basically saved because of his aristocracy. Queen Elizabeth uh, showed it in in I think it, maybe Covent Garden, but she showed it in London and had like this big benefit for the city of Venice, and so that sort of that sort of signaled to people like, yes, it's deeply controversial. But if the Queen of England, you know, can support it, like this she's is... signing off, we're all we're good to go. We, we get a <laughs> pass know, who, and we, we can watch it without who, condemnation. 
who are we to say? And so I watched this movie, and so this is the same year that the Devils came out. This is the same year the Clockwork Orange oh, yeah. came out. This is 1971. This is probably the most controversial year in the history of filmmaking. It's my favorite year of filmmaking. In 1971, movies were crossing Edgy. every line of it. Straw Dogs yeah. came out this year. If you're making Straw Dogs and Clockwork Orange and the Devils. Death in Venice is pretty tame by comparison. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and for me, um, because and part of it's like when I see this film, when I see the film, when I see the camera like looking at Tadzio and Tadzio posing, it doesn't it doesn't stir very much in me. So I think uh, there's a part of me that's like, oh well, that's interesting. There's a part of me that thinks maybe this is all in. Um, in Gustav Aschenbach's, like maybe this is all in his head because why would this kid be acting this way? It's sort of weird. But the overall impact of it is this man's decay really impacts me. Again, maybe it's the music. Maybe I'm being manipulated. Maybe it's the fact that Visconti takes like 15 minutes, eight minutes to do any shot that he takes. And so you're living in this space, in this time with this guy. And I feel it when he melts on that beach. Like that is one of the no blood. No, like, you know, violent act committed against him. But the ending of this film, when he, when, you know, he's made himself up and he looks like, he looks like a clown or he looks like, uh, you know, he's been to the mortician already. What did you see Dirk Bogart's anecdote about the makeup they used and how like he has this great bit where he says, uh, hang on that the crew, uh, they were creating his deathly white skin for his, uh, his death scene and that the makeup department tried all these various face paints and creams, none of which were satisfactory because they kept smearing. He said when a suitable cream was found and the scenes were shot, Bert Bogart recalls that his face began to burn terribly. The tube of the cream was found and written on the side was keep away from eyes and skin but Lucani had ignored this and had been testing it out in small patches on various members of the film crew before finally having it applied to Bogart's face so he just uh, want, he needed the shot and so irrespective of what, of what damage and discomfort Bogart might experience oh and the choice to make that shot to be like a god's eye view and it's just the entire beach and He's so alone. I mean, it is such a – this movie genuinely impacted me the second time I watched it. I really didn't like it the first time. I thought – you know, I thought it was it was a little bit uncomfortable. But more than that, I just thought it was kind of boring. Now I'm watching it the second time and maybe it's because I was I was waiting on my job offers and I was in like a – you know, maybe I was – and I'd watched like eight Visconti movies in a row. So maybe I was already in a dark place. But this in terms of like just morbid beauty is – is like it. Like this is a masterpiece. If you're into uh, in death, my eyes and I'm... this is your flick. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert: there is actually a death. In yeah, Venice. well, the, the whole movie is just dripping with death, and yeah, it's it was actually the first movie I watched as I started getting prepared for this, and I sat down on the couch, and like 30 <laughs> seconds into it, it's like, all right, I, I know what I'm in for. You can feel it from the word go. The 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 photographic style, the music style, the acting style. It's just a very morbid movie. And if you like morbid movies, and there are plenty of people out there who do, go to it. Death in Venice is your flick. Io voglio essere libero. 
libero di cercare la felicità nell'impossibile. Certo che sei cambiata. Sei più bello. Il più bel re d'Europa. Non è un gran complimento, però. Quello che molti dicono di te, è vero. Cosa ti hanno detto? No. È per questo che la pagano. No. È per questo lo farà. No. Costituto. Nel buio di una stanza. Con l'immaginazione del peccato ti renderai conto che il tepore di un corpo è uguale a quello di un altro. Voglio che gli arrestiate tutti! 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 Vaia! Vaia! But when it comes to slow movies, the heavyweight champion of uh, Lucina Visconti's career is Ludwig from 1973, which was horribly butchered at the time of its release. He famously was getting some bad health problems, so he couldn't really fight those changes. But I got the damn Blu-ray on four hours. I've been able to watch it in all of his living glory. But I actually even talked to my trainer earlier today, who's German, about what he thinks about the, the character of Ludwig. But I want to hear first what you think. Ludwig, 1973, what is this flick all about? So this is about uh, the Mad King of Bavaria, the last king of Bavaria, and it's it starts when he's uh, young and he's getting coronated, and then it goes all the way through up until, you know, depending on who you ask, suicide, uh, uh, assassination, whatever. He loses power, and Bavaria is subsumed into the larger German state. Um, this is a man who, again, Ludwig, very similar to Lucchino Visconti himself, is a man who— um, was like a is like a magnet for trivia because he was he lo- he was a lover of the arts he was associated with Wagner a uh, lover of architecture he designed Neuschwanstein Castle amongst many other castles but Neuschwanstein is you know the quote unquote the Disney castle it is the Disney castle <laughs> the Cinderella and, um, castle and yeah and no but this also just brings in everything else that Visconti does so well right like it's so the attention to detail the location shots I mean he was shooting at all these castles. And he just, at this point, didn't even care anymore. He wasn't showing you every single inch of the castle. He was just showing you whatever intimate space he wanted to show you. But he would go to the specific castle. You know, I don't know how many castles he went to, five, ten different castles in order to shoot this film. And the sets are just so amazing. The costume design, everything's perfect. Um, and then the themes are all there too, right? Like the passing of an era, the the dying of the aristocracy. Um, of course, you know, the unification of Germany. Uh, similar to, um, you know, uh, certainly we know where that led to, um, uh, because it really isn't that much further from Otto von Bismarck until you get to the, the third Reich. And so there's a lot of that going on. And again, the connection between the physical body and the body politic, as we see Helmut Berger at his most attractive, I mean, the young, the young Ludwig is just a, this beautiful human And you see him through this film, through the four hours, rot, rot from the inside out. And it is horrifying, horrifying. He ends up looking like, like a, a, a degenerate Sweeney Todd by the end. Um, 
Especially and in yet, contrast so, to Romy Schneider, who is ageless and immortal and beautiful and, and she, lovely. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's one of my all time favorite. She's one of my all time favorite screen actresses. But God oh, damn, she's yeah, amazing. Yeah, she's one of, she is a particularly beautiful woman and she didn't want to play this part because she'd basically done a trilogy with the same role back in the fifties. But luckily because of her friendship with Visconti, she yeah. comes in. And uh, for me, I don't necessarily like Helmet Burger when he's not dubbed. I prefer Helmet Burger mm-hmm. dubbed in Italian, like we get in the the next one. But hearing him speak in German after a while, I'm like, I want to kill this guy. He's driving me fucking crazy. <laughs> but Romy Schneider is so lovely and adorable. She kind of softened my antagonism toward Helmet Burger. Obviously, Helmet Burger is playing a madman. Someone's getting increasingly more so. So I think the effect he was having on me is deliberate, but I do have a hard, I, I was kept thinking what would it have been like if they gotten Klaus Kinski to play this part. And I just, I'm not entirely convinced Helmut Berger is an actor. He's physically very beautiful, he's not. but he's not, <laughs> but he's like, he's like the German Shia LaBeouf in a lot of ways. Oh God. Wow. <laughs> I like, you just tempted me into almost wanting to defend Shia LaBeouf's acting ability, but no, it's not even, it, it's not even that it, he, he, he's totally a Visconti creation. Uh, Dirk Bogard claims, you know, pretty clearly that he was supposed to have a more primary role in, uh, the damned and they decreased his role because of Helmut Berger's yeah, I mean, increased Dirk role. It's like a world-class marvelous right. actor of like legendary, uh, of skill and talent. He made all these great flicks. Yeah. I mean, he's a real, a real thespian in every way, shape, yeah. or form. I don't see Helmut Berger doing any acting in this, but he's, he strikes dramatic poses and he kind of knows how to use his body and that sort of thing. But he's obvious. I think, yeah, if he, if Lucino Visconti hadn't been fucking him, I don't know <laughs> if he would have had a career. He was definitely his 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 main strength is vamping for no yeah, no question. Without that's, a doubt, that's what he yeah. does throughout this. Whereas Romy Schneider did, is a marvelous actress. I absolutely love and yeah. adore her. But for me, it's it's still so interesting. It's I could I don't know. Um, it, it's still sufficient for me just to get to. He looks like a king. He looks like the best looking possible version of a king that ever lived. There's no way that actual kings ever looked as good as this. Um, and I so, love no, bringing yeah, Trevor Howard to play fucking Wagner. I mean, Trevor Howard's incredible in this, yeah, and he's. I mean, babe, you watch movies like you know, like Brief Encounter or The Third Man and things like. I mean, Trevor Howard is so goddamn good, and I love that the idea though, of like that Ludwig has this fascination with art, but he's incapable of creating it. So he tries to surround himself with people where he can basically flood them with cash to make these beautiful works of art happen so they can have some sort of legacy. And that I found to be the most interesting part of this movie is this guy, he yearns to be surrounded by creative people, even if it means running them ragged, like that poor actor who's stuck performing for him for like a week straight. And he's like, he's like, I can't act anymore. I need to sleep. Like I can't just keep like performing for you, but those scenes actually, I was laughing hysterically where this beautiful young actor is brought in to basically spend some time with them and be seduced. But what he doesn't understand is that Ludwig doesn't want to spend time with the actor. He wants to spend time with the parts that he plays. And that was just deliriously entertaining. Yeah, no, and it's pretty clear that, you know, there's some there's some aspect in any of these aristocratic uh, heroes in his films that are some aspect of Visconti. And it's pretty clear that there's some aspect of Visconti. I mean, if you think about it, this guy was a communist, right? And he was the, but he was also a pretty influential guy. Um, he could have, he could have, he could have ran for prime minister 
of Italy. I don't know if you run for prime minister, but he could have been like deeply. He could have taken all of the dedicated, the dedication and hard work that he put into his artistic career and done all of this stuff for politics and chose not to. And so to identify with Ludwig, who, you know, was similarly was born into a situation. Ludwig never would have wanted to be king. In fact, I think if his little brother had not gone nuts, he would have just abdicated and given given over the kingdom. And so it's the it's this he has the same sort of conflict where he'd much rather just make opera and escape into art and the romance the romance of the life that he wants to lead rather than actually, you know, dealing with politics and war. Oh and- yeah, the fact that there's, there's a war on and he is completely utterly uninterested oh. and just increasingly becomes just a recluse and an eccentric and as you said, he's just yeah. physically rotting and terrified to face the outside world. It's one of the things where he spends so much time alone that even when Romy Schneider comes to visit him, he like he can't even face her. It's not like she like walked down the street to pay him. She's like she's traveled across the country to visit him and he can't even come to the door to meet her. He just completely recoils in horror from the outside world. So it is fascinating to watch, but I don't know if the movie needed to be four hours long. As I was watching, I was like, you know what? I'm feeling the length. It this is this is this is not like Rocco and his brothers is three hours. But I yeah. like every single one of those hours as it's unfolding. It felt very organic and natural for the story that was being told. Ludwig definitely took me to the uh, – it, it tested my, my, my endurance a little bit because there's not <laughs> a lot of four-hour movies out there that really work. Like there's 1900 Bartolucci's movie, which is five hours, and that can be tough to sit through. But yeah, these really long, challenging movies – they're always an, an ordeal to an extent. I think once you cross two hours, 50 minutes, like The Godfather, or three hours, like Lawrence of Arabia, you're definitely in, in quicksand. Yeah, th- this is broken up into um, this is broken up into five pieces when I watch it. This is a mini series. This is like eight hours don't make a day. This isn't this is an entire day sitting down and watching it. I, but on the Blu-ray, you have the option. You can watch it like a TV yeah. show, broken up into pieces, or you can watch it like a movie. And everywhere I looked online, no one could confirm which version I should see. So I was like, fuck it. We're watching it as a movie, and I, I, I tossed in that version. <laughs> I respect that. I respect that. No, and that's a complaint that I've heard. I've heard uh, – that's a frequent complaint with this film. There's a part of me that's just so – yeah, I just totally fall for this every single time. Um, yeah, no, this is this is if you like if you like those aspects of Visconti's films where it's the attention to detail, it's the amazing access that he has to real locations um, and just – the most melodramatic of melodrama. Uh, this is certainly this is certainly something you can in, get into, and that works on me. So this movie is is one of my favorites, um, and I consider it to be one of his masterpieces. But it definitely divides people, um, in no small part for the two complaints uh, or the two things that you pointed out. Perhaps Helmut Berger isn't necessarily you know Laurence Olivier, uh, and also it just it's he's taking his time with this. Unfortunately, this movie would test his body. I mean. Like we said, he was smoking 120 cigarettes a day, working around the clock. He, during post-production on this film, had a stroke. Um, And so, yeah, we're definitely seeing this. Lots of things happened with this film and the following films because of the fact that he was not in 100% throughout the production. Uh, Really, he never gets back to 100% after this point, after Ludwig. Yeah, if you're physically frail, I mean, movies movies are just a demanding art form. You got to have strong legs and an iron constitution. It's kind of a young man's game. You see some people in their seventies that are still just fine, but yeah, if you're directing from a wheelchair, people are just going to take advantage from take advantage of you. But I do think conversation piece in '74 has some good things in it. At least he and Burt Lancaster got to work together again. And Burt Lancaster, mm. who worked with 
Richard Brooks and who worked with Alexander McKendrick and he worked with John Sturgis and he worked with a, a lot of really cool filmmakers. He said that Lucina Visconti was the favorite director he ever worked with throughout his entire career. So yeah, and again, this is this is somebody that uh, Visconti Visconti never. Uh, I don't know, depending on the stories, uh, I tend to believe that Visconti never picked Lancaster for the leopard, that that was sort of foisted upon him. Well, he was openly dismissive of him. And Lancaster delighted in telling the story about how when it was proposed that they use Burt Lancaster because of his bankability, he's like, oh, he's a terrible actor. He's a cowboy. He's a gangster. Because he had done a lot of Westerns like Gunfight at the yeah. OK Corral and things like that. So I get it. But goddamn, Burt Lancaster was so game and he was he was ready. And Burt Lancaster was a real actor. I think people, because he was so tall and handsome and strong and athletic, they just assumed, oh, this is like another John Wayne type, but he was like a fucking tank with the soul of a poet. And yeah, I'm a big yeah. Burt Lancaster oh, yeah. fan. But, oh, no question. But no conversation question. piece took me into very strange ethical territory because as I was watching it, I was blown away by the beauty of a young actress. And I kept thinking, God damn, like, I wonder if she's done anything else. Oh, no. And naturally, I was like, well, let's see if she's done any nude scenes because she was kind of she has like a brief nude scene in this. And I found some uh, some pictures from Italian Playboy from the mid 70s. Only to realize as I was looking at it, she was born in 1959. These pictures were from 1975. I was technically looking at an underage girl. And it's like, well, I'm having a Lucino Visconti <sighs> moment because I'm breaking the law. <laughs> but I guess Italy had different laws and rules about the age of consent and so on and so forth. But she's a beautiful young girl. And I emphasize she's a girl. She's 15, 16 years old in this movie. But she does appear basically in a three-way with Helmut Berger at one point. She's almost kind of trying to lure yeah. Burt Lancaster in. So he wasn't afraid, both in Death and Venice, and in conversation piece to take the viewer into very strange ethical territory. Yeah, no, I was actually, I meant to say during Death in Venice, so I never really, well, like while Death in Venice is uncomfortable and while there's just no way to like get over the fact that the storyline is what the storyline is, it's sort of just, I don't know, it just didn't like, it didn't impact me. And so I didn't, I don't take, I don't think about that too hard. But in terms of like, like I think of uh, Valerie in our Week of Wonders. I was so pissed when I watched that movie because I didn't find out until afterwards how young the woman was when she made the film. Yeah, I feel like there should be like a warning that people give you. Like there should be something on it. But the Europeans are just different. Though. Like we Americans tend to be more prudish, prudish and buttoned up, and. Yeah. The legal age of consent, I think, in a lot of European countries is 16, but also we shouldn't be hypocrites. I, I, I can't tell you how many like old women I've met who say, oh, I got married when I was 16. I got married when I was 17. Or like, oh, that's so sweet. You were married for 70 years for the same person. And so I think a lot of times we feel like we're obliged to feign outrage or appear to be shocked, et cetera. <laughs> but if I'm- I just want to know ahead of time. Yeah. I just want there to be like a, hey, by the way, uh, just remember that this woman is 13 years old. And it's like, no, I thought she was- I thought she was 19. Um, and actually, I didn't know this about the conversation piece. And I have gone on another podcast to say that is one of the most erotically charged and one of the most <laughs> beautiful scenes I've ever seen. I had no idea she wasn't. Shame on you. I assume she was 18 or 19. Yeah, yeah no. That I I really enjoy this movie. So I'm, I'm a big Ingmar Bergman fan. And this is clearly they knew about each other. I don't know that Visconti was ever particularly impacted by Ingmar Bergman, but this is like the one movie where I could see, you know, Ingmar Bergman ever making anything like it. It's a contained piece that mostly takes place in, you know, some guy's apartment and the apartment above his. And it's just a lot of people talking to each other about ideas and about politics and about love. And there's a lot of like sense of loss um, you know, history plays a part because, of course, the little room that uh, 
that Helmut Berger's character gets shuttled off into is very similar to the hidden room that the Visconti family had in Rome during the resistance in World War II, where they would actually keep, you know, um, they would keep partisans and they would keep allied soldiers like hidden in a little secret room. Now, in this one, it's a really handsome Helmut Berger. And Burt Lancaster's character is clearly, you know, I don't, I don't know that he ever acted on it, but clearly wishes that he had explored his sexuality more during his life. And he's, he has this guy like locked up in a, a secret room. It's very interesting. Yeah, I actually really liked the part that Burt Lancaster plays in this because he, as he admits, he's like, you know, I spent a lot of time studying, a lot of time traveling, and then I fought in a war, and then I got married. But he's lived the life of an intellectual, obsessing over and collecting all these portrait uh, portraits ever since. And he invites the chaos of this family into his life. And this is a family that's always drinking and fucking and going crazy. And like the the the, the mother like is fucking a much younger man who she's basically paying all of his bills like a like a gigolo. And he's inviting all this chaos into his life because he's never gotten to experience it firsthand. And as somebody who's forty two who lives alone, who oftentimes has like total control over what I allow into my life and what I don't. It reminded me like a little bit of like when I go home and I'm like surrounded by a hundred thousand like nieces and nephews and siblings and it's just total fucking anarchy and people screaming and teenagers like staying out late and getting in trouble and I so I started to relate to what he was going through quite a bit because I do like to keep my life pretty calm so that I can get more things done and but you gotta ha- let some chaos in you gotta let some actual real life in from time to time or you're just living the life of like a monastic monk and it's just it's, that's no life of any kind of, at all no matter how much you might like these paintings. Yeah, and the movie is the movie is smaller than his previous films. He had wanted to do, I think, uh, Marcel Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, but when he was wheelchair ridden, uh, he needed to make this movie. Burt Lancaster actually had to back up uh, the insurance policy, the completion insurance, because uh, they were concerned of Visconti's health that he wouldn't be able to finish the movie. Yeah, he could drop dead and at so, any moment. Yeah. Yeah, which you know um, seemed to be uh, that was like kind of a good guess. Uh, but no, and th- but I love this movie. This is one of my favorite Visconti films. It feels like he is. It feels like he really like had a sense of his own mortality. Like Visconti himself had a sense of his own mortality and wanted to make a story that really like addressed all of the things and all of the themes and all of his ideas uh, of his previous life. And also, Hel- basically everybody involved says that the professor character and Helmut Berger, who's um, Silvana Mangano, uh, the Marchesa's. Uh, lover, but also is pretty clearly like a some way a love interest or a, there's some attraction between the professor and Helmut Berger's character. Um, it's pretty clear that that professor Berger relationship is based off of the Visconti Berger relationship. Helmut Berger says it. Burt Lancaster says it. Basically, everybody says it. And so to get that glimpse into what this guy's life, what his interior life is, anyways, uh, you know, Lucchini Visconti. After all the movies I'd seen of his, to like get almost like a borderline autobiographical depiction of his life at the point that this movie was made was really fascinating and a little sad. There's a little bit of sad in it where it's like I mean I don't know Visconti doesn't seem like somebody that really held back too much in his life but you also read accounts of you know Helmut Berger going out every night uh, midnight till 5am in the morning while they were living together going to the clubs and probably That's what you get when you date somebody much younger than you like people who are older <laughs> are ready to have dinner and go to bed and if you're dating like whether you're dating a younger girl younger guy whatever they're gonna go out they're gonna go fucking crazy and the older person's gonna yeah. be annoyed but sorry I mean Helmut Berger I'm sure partied his fucking face off in the late 60s <laughs> early 70s and Lucino probably just wasn't young enough to, to hang. So that's just yeah. that, that's what you invite into your life when you have a 
massive generation gap in a romantic relationship. And so you get that sense of it, but then you also get that it, it really in many ways, like this could have been his last film, right? Like this could, you could very easily picture this just being the last Visconti and this being the final word at the end when uh, Burt Lancaster, Lancaster's character confronts the family and they're talking about politics. And basically, I think it's the daughter's boyfriend says, you know what? I'm so glad that all you old communists don't actually do anything, which is such a clearly what people in Italy were saying, you know, people on people on Visconti side were saying, like, you're just you're like an old washed up. You don't do anything for the cause. And the professor's response is just like, you know what? Screw you. You have no idea what you're talking about of what you've lived through. And oh, it's. Just to, it, it felt like I was hearing the my, uh, you know, in my house it isn't Fellini as the maestro, it's Visconti. And sorry, Tony, but like if you know, it, like to hear, it feels like I'm hearing like the maestro's voice coming through Burt Lancaster, and it does after all the movies I've seen of his, it, it that payoff works on me every single time. Very cool. Well, as we're drawing this episode to a close, and I'm new to his work, I'm going to give you the fan a chance to map out like the uh, an introductory guide to Lucino Visconti's work because I feel like even I mean I consider myself a bit of a movie buff I mean I'd only seen one of his movies prior to preparing for this episode how do you invite people into this world where do people start like what are what are the top five Visconti movies in your estimation that will have the best possible chance of converting people over to Mm. becoming a fan of his filmography yeah, there's no question that the big two, and so most people divide up his work into like the neorealism versus the big epics, and of course there are a few other adaptations that fit in there. But I think if you want to, as we mentioned before, Rocco and his brothers and the Leopard are, I think, easily the best way to start off. I think a lot of people really suggest going with Rocco. I think then also Senso. Senso is probably the most visconti film where it just puts all of the stuff in there and, and it's a little for bit criterion fanatics yeah and it's it's also a great presentation lots of background on uh, on visconti on his relationship to opera give you some sense of the history that will play a part in many of his films and so i think those three probably like are the cornerstone of the visconti uh universe then i think some of you know you get into um get into la terra trema uh if you're really into uh the neorealism bellissima is really light-hearted and fun if you just want to throw a movie in the display or, or you know watch something on online and then i think yeah i think when you get when you want to get to the hard stuff when you want to get to the um you know the either the most extreme or like a really pure essence of just just like morbid decay. <laughs> when if you, you want get death and orgies, stage, you got to get into the German trilogy. <laughs> you got to get into, yeah, the German trilogy. And I think specifically the damned and death of Venice are probably the most accessible. And then at that point, you know, yeah, you're ready for Ludwig. <laughs> you're ready. Strap in because you get a couple of nights of watching for you. So, yeah, there's so much, there's so much to cover with Visconti. Uh, we've really, uh, well, obviously, we've covered most, if you know, most of his films and all of his major films, and we've talked a lot about his life. But man, there's just so much more to this guy. Well, I just felt like such a fucking idiot while watching these movies 
not having enough of like a firm grasp of history to appreciate the historical context of a lot of these films, I felt like I needed to do like a couple of days of homework, at least getting like a, a rough estimation of these periods and these conflicts so I could really get to do the deep dive. But it's one of the things where I was just, I was cramming like for an exam and I was just blasting through because I was preparing for this and a Wyatt Earp episode at the same time. So I was jumping back and forth between Wyatt oh, yeah. Earp Westerns and Lucina Visconti <laughs> films and just trying to absorb whatever I could. But I was like, you know what, no matter how much cramming I do, there's no way I can cram this much history into my brain in this short period of time. So I was like, I just hope John's done his homework because I clearly <laughs> am not up to the task. But as I said at the beginning, I really love the episodes of Wrong Real that helped me up my game on areas where I've been kind of pretending to be an expert or just ignoring a filmmaker entirely. And slowly but surely, it's like checking off boxes. There are certain directors that this podcast has allowed me to gain a better understanding of. So thanks again for forcing me and kind of twisting my arm and getting me into the world of Lakina Visconti. Yeah, I mean, Wrong Real is uh, Wrong Real is one of the best podcasts, uh, period. And certainly, it's my favorite podcast uh, about movies from people that love movies. Uh, this is this is this is amazing. I'm so glad I get to talk to you. Beautiful. Well, once again, where can people find you online, and where can people find their sh- your show if they want to hear more about your various obsessions and interests? Absolutely. So. 25th frame media uh so i'm a film baby film and so you can find me on you can find me on twitter you can find me at filmbabyfilm.com you can find me um film baby film i'm on uh itunes the podcast is on itunes podcast and as well as uh google play or whatever basically anywhere where you can get podcasts you can find film baby film um and then if you if you listen to film baby film or you like Criterion now or whatever you also definitely check out 25th frame media and that's uh there's a there's a website and you can get the master feed so you can get film baby film episodes as well as Criterion now and all of the other great shows that are on it. And uh, yeah, and we're all big fans of we're all big fans of Wrong Reel. Wrong Reel is, uh, you know, is the Don Fabrizio of this universe. You are the leopard. This is I do. I feel like I'm on Joe. Ro- like I do. I feel like I'm on Joe Rogan's movie podcast. Like I feel like I'm on the podcast this is such a such a flatter me because i do enjoy the joe rogan experience quite a bit but it's one of those things where i wish i knew more about this topic so that i could really give you like the great satisfying experience that you were hoping for but it's one of those things where if you're into film you kind of have to remain in the perpetual state of being a student your entire life there's always more to learn there's always more to discover and so that's when I get most excited is when I'm learning still. I like revisiting filmmakers that I love and admire, but it's a little bit almost like been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. I feel like as long as you're discovering new works, then it Mm. keeps your cinephilia alive. And like the time of my life where I was most in the movies is the period where I was discovering the most great filmmakers in a concentrated period of time from like age like 20 to like 22, 23, where like every day I was just like falling out of bed and like discovering masterpieces. And so I feel like yeah, that process of discovery is the most important part. So sometimes I show up as the expert and sometimes I show up as the apprentice. And today I was definitely the apprentice. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Excellent. Well, we will definitely have to do it again. And uh, maybe next time we won't talk quite as much about fucking underage (laughs) girls and underage boys and that sort of thing. Because, yeah, these movies definitely took us into slippery territory. But it's wrong real. You expect us to break some taboo of some kind at some point. (laughs) We did. We we discussed them all. I feel feel good. I feel like I didn't. I feel like I didn't uh, step on too many landmines. But we'll we'll see when we listen to it. No, Visconti is... 
you know, he's one of the greats and be, it's something that people are now starting to get more into. And I'm just really lucky. I'm just an ardent fan and it's just so cool to get to talk about it on my favorite podcast. So beautiful. Thank Excellent. You so well, much. We hope you all enjoyed this episode. Definitely check out Film Baby Film and please consider subscribing to our podcast, giving us a rating review, all that good stuff. If you want to get more content, go to my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, where I mostly talk about TV, but also I'm Basically, this time of year, there are no fucking movies coming out. So I'm mostly talking about TV, but I'm waiting for some flicks to come out so I can start doing some reviews. In any case, you can always find me on Facebook, Twitter, my personal profile, at Colbrax. And coming up next, got a giant Wyatt Earp retrospective of all the best movies tackling the story of Wyatt Earp, which I hope you will enjoy. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.